Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Josh Smith Show. The Josh Smith Show is brought to you by Paragon Kilns. Paragon Kilns are some of the fastest heating and most accurate kilns in the world today. Uh, I, in my own custom knife-making business, and so many knife-makers that I know, use a Paragon Kiln uh, just to increase the accuracy and the consistency of which their knives are heat-treated. Check out the Paragon Kilns at paragonweb.com. Also brought to you by Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company knives are working knives for working people. All Montana Knife Company knives are 100% American-made, hand-finished, and hand-sharpened. We here at Montana Knife Company believe that manufacturing can be done here in the U.S., and that's where our knives are built. Check out MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and we are also on Instagram at Montana Knife Company as well as Facebook. Also brought to you by Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is a place I buy my belts, uh, buy a lot of my sandpaper. They also sell steel, grinders, heat treat ovens, just about anything else you can imagine. Maritime Knife Supply is located in Canada, so even though it takes a little bit longer to ship your stuff down here, you can take advantage of the exchange rate, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal when you're putting in a fairly big order. Check out MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and at MaritimeKnifeSupply on Instagram and Facebook. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Josh Smith Show. Man, do I have a guest for you guys. Jeff Shapiro from here in Missoula, Montana is one of the most interesting, coolest people I have ever met in my life. Uh, He should be the most interesting man in the world. Um, he just is, it's just not, maybe not a lot of people know who he is, might not be world famous, but, uh, he's incredible. Uh, he's an incredibly gentle, nice human, um, kind of soft spoken, but man, is he a badass? It was an absolute honor to get to interview him. Uh, it was not enough time even after I think this like two and a half hours and I could spend eight more with him. And so I hope down the road, I can get Jeff back on to tell some more stories because, Honestly, we just scratched the surface and, and I, I can see on some of these other podcasts like a Joe Rogan or somebody how they go five, five and a half hours. It sounds crazy, but um, I could easily have done that with Jeff. So he's a guy who lives his passion. And, and if you get anything from this show, put the work in, go do the work, figure it out and live your passion. He's an absolute inspiration. And uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Uh, check him out. And man, if you keep saying to yourself, ah, someday I'm going to do this, someday I'm going to do that, go do it. Go do it next year or this year. Like put it on the calendar, book it, figure it out, save the money, get the work done, whatever you have to do. But live your life, then live your dreams, live your passion right now. Jeff is a living example of living his passions and his dreams right now. And it's it's the coolest thing in the world. So ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Shapiro. All right, welcome to the shop, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, thanks for coming out. It's uh, it's pretty cool having somebody like you uh, this this close to be able to actually have you out here in person. Well, kind of likewise, you know, I, it's so, uh, Montana is pretty unique. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of places that are like this, but it is unique where we live that there are so many interesting people doing so many different things so close by. I mean, it's, um, I always say, you know, in my world, at least, um, it's interesting in Missoula or in other places in Montana to be at a barbecue and, and, you know, it's a place you, where you could go and there'll be professional athletes or, or whoever, and you would never know it because they're all talking quietly in the corner about their kids. You know, it's a right. nice, nice place to live. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. Like you're saying, I mean, um, like I've heard about you long before I heard about you from Trevor or from, um, you know, from other people that we kind of are friends with, but you know, just from being around, I've heard about the Falcon guy in town or the guy that flies, you know, um, base jumps or whatever. And so, um, but it is amazing that it seems like, I don't, I don't know if it's just cause we live here and I'm biased or, or what, but it seems like the amount of creative people or, or people doing interesting stuff or if, if Montana just attracts kind of adventurers or, or what, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly attracted to it for the same reason that I think that we have that as a reality and it's that you know the economy not, might not be the best it's not a big city it isn't a hub uh in terms of travel so people that choose to live here we tend to live here because of the convenience um for outdoor recreation or whatever we're passionate about yeah and uh you know if you live your life with a lot of passion um it seems like there's a lot of happy and healthy folks around you know and i it's I am a bit surprised sometimes about the diversity of interests that I find in this particular area, but, um, you know, that's the beauty of life is to meet people that can open your perspective and show you worlds that you're not exposed to normally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, how did you, I guess, kind of figure out how you ended up here? I mean, where, where, were you from Montana originally or where? No, I, I grew up in, uh, Western Washington. Um, I did spend, a few months out of every year from the time I was born until 18, I guess, uh, growing up in, in Hawaii, we had some family there and my brother and I, um, used it as a place for feeling pretty independent and, and my folks used it as a place for, you know, for us to, to give them some space, you know, because we would go over without them, um, and spend time with my mom's mom. Um, that's not a bad place to spend. No, it was great. Time as a kid. And, and very, very different than the mountains in Western Washington. So, yeah. um, to have, you know, to be exposed to a diff, you know, even on that level, a different culture was pretty useful to us as kids. But, um, now we grew up in Western Washington, uh, just North of Seattle and, um, exposed to both the sound and the cascades. And it wasn't until after, see, uh, must have been 97. Um, I had graduated from art school in Seattle and we moved to Montana. My wife was uh, born and raised in Billings and then moved to Washington, which is where I met her. And we moved back here to be closer to her family. And because we were both exceptionally attracted to the idea of making the mountains our home. And uh, at the time, Missoula was no traffic, um, very, very uh, community based and um, just the convenience to outdoor recreation was such a huge attractor for me. I was really into hunting and fishing and 
certainly rock climbing and and um at that time uh i was racing hang gliders or actually i wasn't competing so much but flying hang gliders was a dominant feature so uh moving to missoula and having a place to fly my hang glider so conveniently right over town was a yeah was a pretty big attractor to the area i think kara and i came here on our first trip to see if we wanted to live here and we spent uh 10 days camping on rock creek just fly fishing and oh really so we we uh, after that trip we were pretty sold you know it's amazing how famous rock creek has become i know i know I mean, it's it's and, maybe one of the busiest roads in montana yeah yeah well <laughs> in the summer very true and um and yet there's still amazing spots to go up and fish and be by yourself yeah there's a lot of other spots uh close to us that i certainly won't name but yeah please yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean this place is incredible that way yeah yeah it's interesting your wife going from billings to seattle i mean they're pretty much the same billings in seattle you know yeah the, yeah. the landscape and everything right yeah, yeah. good yeah. flat windy billings and then you get to which and actually people think actually billings in eastern montana is flat which i mean it is compared to the mountainous areas but man some of the landscapes out there are some of the coolest you can see absolutely in that country absolutely yeah i think uh billings is sold short sometimes because it is kind of big city for montana but yeah you, know, you have the bear tooths and um well, whatever, East Rosebud, there's quite a few accessible areas to get into the mountains from Billings and the Rims, and some of that more arid topography is, is unique, and it's pretty. It's really, yeah. it's like, you know, going up on the High Line, a lot of people think that the High Line is just, you know, it's basically Montana and North Dakota are the same, but right. but it's so pretty up there. Even if it's just the sky, the the weather is so dramatic in the late summer in particular, and mm-hmm. um at some of those buttes, you know, there's buttes up there uh, north of Chester and Tiber Reservoir. Where, I mean, there's grizzly bears running around on. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really, really unique, beautiful. For sure. No, and I take my kids out hunting um, out around like Jordan and yep. Missouri River Breaks yep. area. And I mean, I don't know if there's anything as well. I mean, there's a lot of you've seen, especially you more than anybody's seen a lot of beautiful places. But I mean, you, you look out across those Missouri River breaks, and it is just mind-boggling boggling how beautiful it is. Absolutely, yeah, and and unique, right? Like, yeah, um, if you were into hunting and and fishing, you go out onto the into the like the Yellowstone Basin, and you know, for people who are passionate about that, you're you have whitetails and down in the river bottom, you have muleys in the in right. the coolies, you got uh, antelope. antelope, and then you have pheasants and and game birds in the in, you know on the on the in the riparian area, so. It's it's really unique for nature lovers, and um, I mean, geez, like the Square Top Butte White Cliff area. I mean, they're digging dinosaurs up. It's just spectacular. I I can't help when I'm when I'm out there. It seems like I'm constantly thinking about what what um, you know most famously, like what Lewis and Clark would have thought when they, I mean, as they were paddling upstream um, into that country, you know, into the Missouri River breaks and into great falls and all that area, but just the beauty of the breaks and the ruggedness, I mean, just the unbelievable ruggedness. And yeah. then you think about the, you know, the Indians and the trappers and everybody that were along like the Yellowstone and, um, just think of like John Coulter and discovering Yellowstone, you know, not that he necessarily discovered it. I mean, I'm sure there were obviously Indians and native people, but yeah, I mean, that, um, that's what I was going to say is the native American culture and, the amount of history in that area, good or bad, you know, it's just incredible. And uh, I mean, if you've ever flown an, an airplane over Yellowstone and seen what that 
landscape looks like. I mean, it's just, I don't, I can't imagine. I don't think that there's any place in the world that's like it, which is obviously why it's, it's so nice to see it protected and for people to be able to come and visit. But you know, the amount of people that are getting away from the roads or the infrastructure is, is pretty tiny. And, um, and yet that whole area is so unique relative to anywhere in the world that I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to see. We've taken the kids there a few times. I've gone, um, when I was single, I took them there just camping, just the, just the four of them and me. And, um, you do, I mean, a lot of people just kind of bitch about the traffic and the people in Yellowstone. Yeah. It's, it's pain in the ass when you're on the pavement, but when you get off, I mean, it relatively short amount of time, you can be relatively alone. I mean, obviously you're going to see more people hiking around there than you are most other places, but still, um, discounting the traffic and the people, the reason it's so busy is because it's mind boggling. I yep. mean, you're standing on this volcano, um, or in the, this volcano that's constantly moving, constantly having tremors and things happening. And, um, we, we walked up on a geyser last year when we were there with the kids that had just gone off the day before and it had been 10 years since yeah. that thing had gone off and it's totally random. Wow. Yeah. Um, but to think about what's happening there, um, it is got it's like you say, it's gotta be one of the most unique places on earth. Yeah. And I, I think that's, um, it's a little bit indicative of why it's so nice to have national parks is, you know, yeah, even in a place like Yosemite that sees, you know, three and a half, four million people a, a summer season, mm-hmm. um, you can still get off the beaten path and be in the middle of nowhere. It's a it's a large wilderness, but the accessibility allows for folks that maybe don't have the ability to do that to still see the you know, what the what yeah. what those places have to offer, which is I think perspective opening and and um you know, it's important. It's it's special. I always tell my kids, like when we're at some of those sites in Yellowstone or Glacier, I'm like, look around at the people. Look at the look at what the people look like around you. And most of them, you know, maybe are Asian or you know their accents are clearly putting them from another country or Europe or wherever. And uh, I tell them, like, we get to live three hours from where these people. This most of the people that are there are there for a once in a lifetime experience. I That's mean, right. some of those old people that are there, seventy year old Japanese guy or whatever. I mean, he may have saved his whole entire life for that trip, and you, <laughs> we get to just run down there and camp for a weekend. Yeah, yeah. I you think know? about how special it, it is when you see a grizzly bear in the mountains. You know, and yeah. how many people would love for that experience or whatever. And for us, it's just sort of a you know, a special day or, or potentially a hazard if you're out hunting or whatever. But, but, um, yeah, we, we, I certainly feel lucky to live here. No doubt. For sure. So you, you growing up in Washington, uh, what, what did your parents do? What was kind of your childhood like there? Um, my dad, uh, he comes from a, um, accounting and law background. He went to law school, but he never wanted to be a lawyer. So he never took the bar and, uh, got into tax work. And for him, you know, um, work was always kind of a means to an end. He was a bit of a fun hog, taught us to, um, to chase what, what made us happy and, and fulfilled us as humans, you know? Um, so that's what he did. My mom was in healthcare. She was a nurse practitioner, had her own, uh, practice and, um, did women's health. Um, 
and you know, they were hardworking parents. My brother and I were kind of latchkey kids when we were growing up. So we found independence pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of alone time to, to get into trouble and get ourselves out and to realize that our decisions have consequences and that yeah. it's up to us, you know, which is pretty special. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been cool since my daughter was born, my folks, um, have retired and they moved to Montana to have a relationship with her. Oh, and cool. so to, to, uh, have conversations with them now, uh, and to see the, the different parenting styles from how I grew up to how we're raising our kid, it's been fun to have them a part of that, you know, right. it's pretty special family, right. families, everything. So that's great. Now, did the your kind of sense or sense of adventure and kind of the path that you ended up on in life um were, did that start pretty young pretty early was your brother kind of involved with you in that or was that kind of a solo journey yeah you know it's funny um my brother and i are like to this day best friends but um we were very different in a lot of ways he's never been attracted to um to re- anything really risky he, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that he was you know, adverse to it either, but he just, what we weren't, uh, really interested in the same things. He was, uh, you know, we, we both skied together quite a bit. My dad was a ski instructor. My brother was a ski instructor at that time in life. I was, um, snowboarding a lot and teaching snowboarding and and have since skied probably more. Mm -hmm. Um, but at that time in life, that's what I was doing. So we shared that. Right. But, um, nah, you know, my, my dad, um, coached cycling. He was really into the cycling world. So we would go down to a local place called Marymore Park and he was um, a coach for uh, the local cycling club and worked with some Olympic level athletes at that time. So we would do these. I, I have really early memories as a kid going to uh, the mountains to train with these cycling teams, you know, put on soccer cleats and run hills and just do all these, you know. Yeah. And of course, you know, my brother and I were pretty adventurous young boys. So we were, you know, doing what other boys do too, right? Playing in the woods. And, um, but I think it must've been between ages 10 and 14. Um, my dad's, one of my dad's best buddies had climbed El Cap in the maybe 78 or 79. And he recognized in me, my interest in alpinism and in climbing, rock climbing. Oh, and, um, you know, I wouldn't have called him a mentor, but he gave me a rope that he prom- he made me promise I wouldn't lead on. And of course I did, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, yeah, and uh, he some, knew you were going to, of anyway. course, yeah. And some gear. And I, um, I found this thing, um, you know, my original interests in surfing and skateboarding and, and snowboarding was maybe an attempt at finding an identity that was different than everybody else's, you know, of my age, I wasn't into football. I played soccer a lot when I was a kid, but, yeah. um, team sports just didn't, it didn't offer the adventure, um, or the, I really, uh, was, have always been attracted to these environments that, um, were hard to, hard to get into, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I think it was mostly, if I look back on it now, maybe subconsciously, even it was mostly this, this, um, learned sort of, you know, Pavlov's bell or whatever of how much you grow when you push yourself in particular ways. And I couldn't find that anywhere else. So I looked at Nat Geo and I read books, uh, you know, white spider and some of these albinism books and, um, those stories, uh, you know, that involved real exploration 
uh, turned me on to the idea of, of climbing. And, um, the fact that it scared me was of additional benefit. So when other kids were playing football, I would hitch rides or, uh, talk, you know, older friends into driving me up to index, which is this rock climbing area up on, um, close to Stevens pass, you know, on highway Mm -hmm. two and, uh, would push myself in ways that maybe I shouldn't have at that age, but I certainly grew from. And, um, and man, I, the, the, in a lot of ways, I would look at those early years as being years that sort of shaped, um, what I, I felt like was important, you know, as a path was was the path for me, the one that I felt most like was going to be most beneficial. Um, you know, differing from flying, which I learned later as a teenager, flying always felt really natural to me, but climbing didn't. When I first started climbing as a youngster, I definitely remember uh, being pretty scared being off the ground. And, you know, you just have to um, convince yourself through experience and, and trusting the gear and, and learning right. um, through trial and error uh, how to be proficient. And then that proficiency allows for confidence, you know. That's, you know, somewhat similar in a way. Um, you know, I was recently for the last 10 years, a lineman for the power company and we'd climb a lot of, you know, a lot of poles, not as many as the old guys did. I mean, nowadays with bucket trucks and whatnot, they were pretty spoiled, but still a lot of our, a lot of our lines around here run through the mountains. And so you got to climb poles and, you know, when I got into that, I was a knife maker that was kind of just getting into it. I had no experience with it, you know, but, um, you, you, in the, in the beginning, it's just kind of, and there's really no way to teach a guy to do it until you just, you got to get up there. That's right. And, and learning to trust your gear. Like you say, that's, that's the big thing is learning to trust. And then, you know, at times you'd, even with that, you'd have shit go wrong. And, and I was actually fortunate to learn, you know, the new OSHA regulations that came out about six years ago require basically complete fall restraint where you cannot fall off a pole. Where when I learned, we had uh, a skid, you know, and if you cut out, you weren't going to fall back off the pole, but you were going to slide down the pole. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which right. sometimes right. you'd actually just wished, if you skate a pole for a little ways, you wished you'd just fell off of it because you pick a lot of splinters out of your chest and your legs from bear hugging that thing sliding down. <laughs> I bet. You know, what's really interesting, though, that I found out later for me is I don't, I'm, it's funny because I, when I say this sometimes, I'm, maybe a little surprised, but I shouldn't be, that other people um, tell me that they've experienced this as well. What I realize is I've never really been afraid of heights, but I have this, um, it's a really strange sensation when I'm really far off the ground, I have an unbelievable urge to unclip myself and jump off. And (laughs) I, I don't know where that comes from or why, but it makes me nervous when I'm standing at the edge of a big cliff. Um, in fact, when I have a rig on or when I'm connected to a wing of some sort, I can hang 10 toes over a 4,000 foot cliff. No problem without even worrying about it. But if I'm, if I'm not wearing something, um, I, yeah, it makes me really nervous. And, and even more so it makes me nervous to see a friend close to the edge when they're not wearing something, even though I shouldn't be. Yeah. And it's just this, um, it's interesting, but I mean, based on where your path went, it's pretty obvious that you were meant to fly. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if I was meant to or not, but I certainly find a lot of, um, uh, it's like a uh, deep breath of air, you know? It's like a, um, for me, it's a, uh, it's a, 
it feels like going home, you know, it's like a, um, a way to relax, a way to gather my thoughts. And, and certainly I think that there's a lot of presence involved, which, you know, tends to be, a um, maybe a, a, a choice in life that, um, that I, it's occasionally less obvious, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cause we're always caught up in what's coming next or what's right. happening two weeks from now or next month or whatever. But, I've noticed that um, You're flying, so present. flying and climbing in a lot of ways, less so, but flying in particular, you have to be focused on what you're doing 100% of the time, and there's just really not a whole lot else that exists. So when you're living in that type of presence, then um, time becomes less, um, you know, uh, hindering, I guess, you know? Yeah. Like it doesn't... It, um, doesn't matter as much. And, uh, I'm so engrossed in what I'm doing that, um, it's not an escape. It's just a, um, yeah, it's, it's a hard, you know, we always talk about presence in sort of a fortune cookie kind of way, mm-hmm. but I think that living in the present for me, like as an example, if I'm on a, um, an expedition and the only thing I have to do for the entire day is to rest, uh, acclimatize, read a book, go for a hike, the days last forever, right? you know, um, because I'm, I'm really present. I'm there and there's nothing else for me to, to do, but to focus on where I'm at and enjoy mm-hmm. the place. But if I'm at home or in a routine of some sort, and it's all about what's happening tomorrow or the next day or what I get to do a week from now, uh, that week goes by like, like snap of a finger. Sure. You know? And, um, so yeah, a lot of flying or, or climbing is about presence. Uh, although as a, as a youngster, I wasn't aware of that yet. Right. I, I think people, different people find that presence, um, in different things, but I think it's similar in a way like, uh, there's, there's a, well, one guy in particular knife makers did a, did quite a speech for Sornex, uh, Neo Kamamura, but he talks about how blade forging and forging knives kind of saved his life because he had a lot of trauma that happened to him young in life as a kid and and we've also heard the same stories from um well I interviewed a guy on my podcast that I had no idea he had this connection to it but when he came back from Vietnam he had a lot of demons those are his words and he found forging was a place he could get lost in and he was in that moment in in that presence you know and when you're beating on a hot piece of steel you really can't be thinking about anything else you're you're in that moment and those guys have found um, something that that takes all their attention and their focus for an hour or right. two hours or whatever, and it it kind of washes away everything else that they're maybe thinking about. And you know, and your situation's different, uh, obviously, but still, it's that whole just solely solely focused, yeah, I purpose mean, I, and. I see that there's um, there's quite a bit of benefit that people have found throughout history in whatever form of you know meditation or I, for lack of a better word that that they use, and um, I think any any form is just allowing thoughts to come and go and um, and or to be so present in what you're doing that um, the sole purpose is to be focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I think. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a uh, a reset, mm-hmm. you know, and it can be found. I mean, I, I think um, <laughs> if I'm honest, 
you know, you can find that level of consciousness with a quiet mind. It's just so much more difficult. Right. I mean, you know, for me, it's so easy. You just, you know, if you jump off a cliff or you launch off a mountain, you're in it. You're sort of right for, forcing yourself into that flow state or whatever. But, um, but I think the benefit is the same and it doesn't, you don't have to do that to find it. You can, you can find it walking your dog or running in the mountains or, or forging right. knives or, or whatever it is. I think that, 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 that result is the same. And which is why, um, people who have that or have a passion that they're focused on, um, can communicate, you know, sure. we're talking the same language cause it's the same thing, you know? Right. So when was it that you first kind of found flight? I mean, so yeah, was it, was I, it young? Were you yeah, young? It was. Yeah. And it's so funny cause I, um, I mean, I remember doing a career report in fourth grade or fifth grade or something on being a pilot. It's something that has always attracted me. You know, I was attracted to. Um, and once again, it was one of those things that just, you know, I think innately humans aren't really meant to fly, but so, sort of um, it's like a, some form of magic that we can, you know, yeah. for a kid, for a young kid. Yeah. And um, I don't know if that's where the attraction was, but I had a friend who was building, um, portal ledges. They're like the folding cots that you sleep on, on the mm -hmm. side of a big wall. And, uh, he was designing those in packs and harnesses. And I was going over to his shop to pick up some to take down to Yosemite. And, um, there were pictures of him in his shop, uh, flying hang gliders. And, you know, at the time I didn't, I mean, I remember seeing you know, that movie Condor Man as a little kid and, you know, this guy opens his wings up and jumps off, I think, the Eiffel Tower or something. <laughs> yeah. Been, well, 40 years since I've seen it. But um, seeing photos of him flying a hang glider in his shop, it was like, uh, you know, the answer to a question that I'd never known how to ask. And he, um, w it was a little difficult to convince him that a punk 17-year-old kid could, you know, you, I'm sure you looked at it and said, I want to do that for sure. And he was yeah. like, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, you and, you know, so he, uh, had me buy some books and, and, um, I think he gave me a list, a list of tasks that he was pretty sure I wasn't going to do, Yeah, but, um, I was, did them all in a week, hundred <laughs> percent obsessed, totally yeah. obsessed, you know, and, uh, bought this this old glider, it was like, um, it was a flight designs 205 thing was built in 1970, had duct tape all over it. I mean, it was, now I know it to be barely airworthy, you know, but, um, he took me to the training hill and taught me how to fly. And, um, I mean, in a really unconventional way, being an instructor now, I, I would never teach someone the way that I learned, although I'm eternally grateful. Did he for, just tell you to jump off? Pretty well, much? yeah. And I, I think I said this in another, uh, podcast or interviewer, yeah, literally, we he we hiked up this hill in um, north of Seattle. This is like an old sort of cow pasture with a hill on it, and uh, I'll never forget it. He's, you know, kind of this old gangly hippie dude at the time. You know, th that description, of course, is coming from my perspective then, which was as a seventeen-year-old, once again, total punk-ass kid. You know, right? And um, he like sits down mid-height on the hill. It's about a hundred and fifty-foot hill, maybe a hundred-foot hill. And he literally starts rolling up a doobie, you know, and he's like, yeah. he's like, all right, kid, let's see what you can do with that. Thing. This is, he's thinking this is going to be good. Yeah, exactly. And um, let's see what you can do with yeah. that. Yeah. I, I launched from the top of the hill and, uh, you know, went prone, which you don't do on the training hill, uh, went to the base tube 
um, which you don't do on the training hill and immediately hit the ground and broke both down tubes. And I was totally fine, but, um, I got the flying part down. It was the landing part that I hadn't quite got to yet. You know, how high off the ground do you think you got that first time? You know, I don't know, 25 or 30 feet higher than I should have been probably. Yeah. And, uh, he was like, okay, all right. You know, takes me back to the shop. We fixed the glider, go back out, spent the remaining part of the day, um, sort of whittling my way through it. And then the next morning he had me meet me there again, or he had me meet him there again. And, um, I took a, I don't know, maybe a morning's worth of training hill flights, one of which I stalled the glider and promptly dumped it into the middle of a blackberry thicket, you know, which, <laughs> which I'll never forget because it wasn't the, the landing that was, that was, that sucked. It was trying to get it back out, you know, it's oh. just covered. So he, I imagine he's laughing his ass of off. Of course he is, you know, yeah. of course he is. And we got, it must've been 10 30 AM. So I don't know, six, seven flights. I mean, my memories, I got it kind of the memory of a goldfish, but it was something like that. And he's like, all right, I think you're ready. (laughs) (laughs) So we went to this uh, local mountain and um, he kicked me off the top for my first high flight. And uh, I don't remember a single second of it. I just went into sensory overload mode, you know, and I read, I, I, my, my, um, the, the crispest memory I have of that morning was landing and having this guy walk up to me and hand me a beer as a teenager and said, all right, well, that was obviously your first flight. So really? congratulations, you know, and, uh, they're there they're two minutes earlier placing bets on whether you were going to crash or not survive. Yeah. I mean, I flew with a knee hanger harness and no parachute and a bike helmet. And I mean, you know, I was just this baby face kid. Yeah. And, um, that thought, you know, that thought I knew everything from the, the, what four years of rock climbing that I had done at that point, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's appalling at this age or after this, this many years, but it, whatever, you got to start somewhere. Right. Right. And, uh, to his credit, he took me into the mountains almost every day that summer. So sometimes two or three laps, we, you know, and had your parents, were they like, did they even know what the hell was happening? So my, my mom and dad were pretty concerned about me rock climbing. Um, through those high school years and I graduated high school um you know at a younger age than most so I had turned 17 moved out of the house was living in an apartment with a buddy when I started learning how to fly so they didn't even need to know about it well you know yeah (laughs) I think that they knew only what I told them right that's right exactly and uh I think after um, gaining just enough knowledge and perspective to realize that my equipment needed to be upgraded <laughs> significantly. Yeah. I, um, I sold a car that I had saved up for and, um, bought a new glider and a new harness and, uh, and an old 73 camper bus. And it was like the best move I ever made, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, got into, got into flying. Did you just pretty much go live on the mountain at the base of the mountain or? No, but I, um, I mean, I was working in a restaurant and just, you know, trying to make my way. Um, and, uh, going to, I think I was going to college at that point, maybe a junior college or something. I, I was pretty, um, unsure as to what direction I wanted to go. How do you focus on schoolwork when you're well, you thinking don't. about flying? Like, <laughs> you don't. And that was the problem was, is that, that between climbing in the mountains and flying hang gliders that was all i could think about right and and really it was um 
I think it caused a, a, a larger growth spurt in my life, something that I needed. You know, I, I um, you cannot do either one of those sports with a male, young male ego and not be extremely humbled and because you're constantly getting your ass kicked. Right. And I don't think that there's anything more healthy for me at that stage in life than experiencing that level of failure, you know, and that uh, level of consequence, like the risk involved is very obvious. And um, I think when... Yeah, it's obvious to most people, but even, but most of us who were 21, 22, you know it's there, but it's like, it's just not as obvious. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, at that time I had rubber bones and I was indestructible in my own mind, which is obviously untrue on both accounts, right? Right. But at the same time, um, there's a, a level of self-reflection that undeniably happens. And mm-hmm. I don't care how ego-centered you are as a young boy, you know, or how badass you think you are. You can talk the talk and you can dress the part and, you know, put on your costume and pretend like you're some, you know, badass. Right. When you're, when you do, you, you can't fake it. You either do it or you don't. Right. And when you're racking up for a lead or you're about to run off a mountain, you have to look pretty deep in the mirror and say, right. you know, okay, this, if you have any level of intelligence I at all. Shit exactly. I, that's yeah. it. That's it. And oftentimes the answer is yes. Right. And yeah. then, you know, depending on your level of character, your desire, your passion for it, you still do it and you learn. And, right. um, and occasionally I would get pushed to the point at which mistakes would cause that level of reflection to say, why am I doing this and, and who am I? And do I really need this? Do I, is this something I really want or do I want to be this? You know, and there's a, a very interesting distinction between wanting to be the thing and actually wanting to do the thing. Right. And when there's risk involved, you, you better know the answer to that question. And right. as, a, as a young kid, um, being forcing myself, obviously it was of choice. You know, it's not like, you know, being in the military where you're you're fighting for f- freedoms or for people that can't fight for themselves and you're put in a situations that you wouldn't choose to be in. Right. I always do is recreation, for God's sakes, you know. Right. But at the same time, um, you're choosing to do things that have a level of consequence that forces you to say, you know, who am I? Like, what, mm-hmm. what do I really want and why? Because mm-hmm. if it's just to be the thing, then, you know, in the words of Peter Croft, like if you if you screwed it up, like blew it severely mm-hmm. and that was the reason, well, then you've had an awful joke played on you. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. I, something kind of strikes me of like when you were a kid and kind of being left alone to go play in the woods. And it reminds me a lot of when I was a kid, um, I grew up, we, I had a couple neighbor kids that we were, my dad was working nonstop during the day and, um, my mom was around, but like we were always outside playing yeah. and we were out in the woods nonstop. And one of our favorite things to do was as kids. And I mean, God, we were, we were pretty young, pretty little kids, but you know, say six to 10, we, we were climbing trees. Yeah. And I mean, I remember one time specifically, like we, I, I went and got my mom to show her just like we had like set a new level, a new record <laughs> to show her how high we had climbed, you know? And so I go get her 
or no, my buddy went and got her, and she comes over there, and she was like, I mean, I don't think she had any idea. Like, we were told, like, well, we're out climbing trees. She's like, oh, that's great, kid. Well, then she got out there, and she realized, like, we're, like, 50 feet up in these trees, and she's like, holy shit, you know. But it's interesting being able, as a kid, to be able to find your own level of, like, risk that you can take. And even kids know, like, you can take some risk, but then you generally, kids know, like, I can't step on that branch. Like that's a branch too far. I probably shouldn't have stepped on the last three, but this one's too far. This is too much. And even as a, as a young, young man, um, and and I've, I've said for a while, like I've said a lot, a lot of the issues I think we have in society and with kids and whatever is not enough kids were allowed to just run around and play in the woods unprotected. For sure. And I got stitches in my knee when I was like, 10 years old because I was riding my bike with too many tools because we were heading to our tree fort and I fell and I landed on the, it was like a two man saw that I was carrying with, you know, teeth on the saw that were like an inch, ran it through my knee and ended up having to get stitches and whatnot. But we were out just digging holes and building forts and doing whatever and allowed to blow off that energy and that steam and find risk and hurt ourselves. And it's, it's unfortunate that more people, more kids and it's not not anybody's fault necessarily i mean what are you supposed to do if you live in an apartment in a city you know but yeah yeah but you know i i do think that um you know teaching our kids or you know i try and teach my daughter my, my wife and i do that um you know she's not like i don't have any control of her i mean mm-hmm. i i can pretend that i do but she's her own person and she more important for me it's more important for me to teach her that she gets to make her own choices and that those choices have consequences, good or bad. Because, you know, for me, I'm a true believer and it's not what I can do for her, but it's what I can teach her to do for herself. That way I can sleep at night when she's on her own, you know? And um, I think whether we're interested in making knives or or, um, flying or climbing or, or any kayaking, whatever interest people have, I think we're all drawn by um, the same sort of desire for, you know, to satisfy a curiosity about what's out there and, and what we're capable of. And, um, you know, that last step out onto that branch, it's, it's really this curious thing, right? And, um, you know, you, you suffer some consequences along the way, you start getting smarter to it, right? You only have to grab the hot handle once or twice before, you know, maybe I should, right. You know, think about it. Well, and we, and I, and I say one of the best things my parents did, like when I got into making knives at 11 and then through that 12, 13 range, you know, um, they, they let me, they actually allowed me to go out and work in a shop with machinery and tools and whatever. And they trusted me to know the risks and, and they told me the risks and they showed me. And, and the guy that taught me to make knives definitely laid out the risks and whatnot. But it was also, you know, I was also made aware that, if you abuse this privilege, it's going to go away. Right. But they actually put that on me. And that's a big, like trusting your kids and not over parenting, not over protecting and actually trusting them to do the right thing. Um, now, granted, there was a lot of stuff that happened out there that I never told them about. I mean, and I think now looking back on it, I'm sure my dad knew because there were like holes in the sheetrock behind the drill press right. that he didn't put there. <laughs> <laughs> so like blades got away from me, right. you know, and luckily they went towards the wall and not at me. But um, 
I always tell people like, man, let your kids learn and experience things from maybe you're an accountant or a lawyer or whatever, but maybe that guy down the road's a welder or, or got a little plane. And if your kid wants to go take a flight with him, let him go, you know, and um, let your kids be exposed to, or, you know, for me, a lot of times in the summers, I went out to my buddy's ranch and we rode four wheelers and motorcycles and took our, in the beginning was BB guns. And then it was 22s and shotguns and hunting birds and hunting coyotes. And, but we were completely free on, 20,000 acres to just be well yeah and I I, I mean like I said I, I think there's there's not you know there's certainly not the way to parent there's just a way or whatever you know but what I appreciated about my um the way I grew up and and the way we try and influence our daughter is is just that that you know to say that they're um that I don't have any control over her doesn't mean that there aren't uh, guidelines and rules and the things that right. we, you know, expectations, expectations and, and healthy expectations, you know, but, but the difference is, is when, you know, Naya makes choice, um, that, that causes a consequence that might be negative. It's not me that's doing it. Right. Right. It's, it's her choice. And, um, if she gets in trouble for, for, you know, making a bad choice, it wasn't, you know, the consequence might involve her, her mom and I, but it's not us that's doing that. Right. Right. And so that distinction enables her to respect herself and to make her own decisions, knowing that um, I need to think about what I'm, you know, I want to, I should think before I speak. I should certainly right. think before I act. And, um, and that starts at one and two years old. Absolutely. Like people, yeah. people under, I always say, you know, and I, I've got some really good kids, but I, I always say your parenting, like a baby can train you. I mean, the, the baby you go get out of the crib because it's crying, you put it in bed with you, and guess what? That's right. A month later, that baby is not going to sleep at its crib. It's going to just right. lay there and cry. Like It's amazing how young a, a child can be and learn. Yeah, yeah, you words know? are important. I yeah. Mean, I remember saying, you know, Kara and I would never say, you know, oh, good, you know, good girl, Naya. It was always like, ah, Naya, that was a good choice. Good, yeah. That was a good choice, you know, because sure. those, those words matter, and now that she's, you know, going to be 17 in a couple of months or next month um yeah it's it's neat to see her developing into a a very independent young lady you know well and it's cool as a parent because you know i know we were discussing earlier but um off air but just kids and the fact that our daughters are the same age and kind of faced with the same things now and challenges in life as far as just going out and starting life and even though you have hopes and dreams and whatever, I mean, ultimately I don't care what she does. Um, right, but right. what's cool about it is I'm not worried about it. Like I'm not worried about her. She'll be fine. That's it. Um, even though she has no clue what she wants to do or where she wants to go really. Um, I'm not worried at all. And in fact, I'm, you know, yeah, it'll be a, a bit of a bummer to not see her and have her around every day, but I'm excited about it. Like I can't wait to see what she does. I'm not, I'm not going to be, I don't feel like I'm going to be sad at all. Well, and know? that's winning, right? Yeah. That's winning. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So how did your flying, I mean, you, so you're kind of in college, you're flying, you're, you've, you're upgrading your equipment a little bit. Like obviously you're starting to step the level of your game up as far as your equipment. And how did that progress? Um, and where did it, how did it kind of lead, lead to the next thing? Well, I mean, it was always kind of an organic thing because um, I had a, um, uh, uh, like a, a real passion for it. It w- once again, it was something that was adding so much to my life that I didn't question it. Um, 
I was still climbing a lot and uh, enjoyed the the physical aspects of climbing and um, the, the cultural and the sort of the access that it gave me to um, the mountains. You know, I, I mean, I think I love mountains more than any other environment. Certainly, I have to. I can. I, I love visiting the ocean or the desert, but I, I got to live in the mountains. Mm-hmm. You know. How, so, did you have a group of climbers around you kind of teaching you? Or, no. I mean, because you were young. I, I read a lot and um, learned a lot on my own. I definitely had friends that I climbed with, but most were peers. I did have some some sort of um, some guys that played, a, you know, mentor role. But, you know, I sort of dove in head first. So uh, in the early 90s, I started going down to Yosemite, and we would just get ourselves in our, over our heads and based on – what we had read and what we had learned, we would figure it out. Yeah. And, um, I think a lot of, especially at that time, you know, certainly it wasn't the golden era in Yosemite by any means, shape or form, but there was enough of a community of people doing that, that, um, there was a lot of collective learning going on. You know, you'd get yourself in over your head and you talk about it and, you know, camp four or somewhere else or whatever, standing in the parking lot with other climbers. And then people would, oh yeah, that happened to me and I did this or, or whatever. So I would learn, um, collectively with the community that I was hanging with, but it wasn't like a student mentor type, um, situation for me in climbing. Flying, uh, was the opposite. I was the youngest by a long shot of the people I knew that flew hang gliders. In fact, the large majority of people I flew with were old enough to be my dad. Yeah. And a lot of them acted that way, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was, um, like I mentioned before, flying felt very, very natural to me. So, um, I, I look back on it now and I'm sure it came off as just being some cocky kid, but I found, um, some, you know, early competency in a way that allowed me to, to, to do some pretty neat things in a hang glider as as a young guy. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it must've been, uh, early well maybe 90 yeah about the time I moved here actually I learned in 93 it must have been 97 or so um I started flying uh in some competitions and um maybe a couple of years later I hurt my finger I pulled a tendon on one of my fingers when I was trying to climb something that was pretty hard for me mm-hmm. and uh I needed I had I was forced into some downtime and um I decided I would I would put my head down and try competing in a hang glider to sort of occupy my attention at that time. And, um, you know, I've been climbing in the mountains and really loving ice climbing. And there were other ways that I could continue to climb other than just like, you know, pulling really hard. But, um, this sort of, um, change in my path towards competing in a hang glider ended up being a catalyst for the life I'm living now. Um, because, you know, it became a, uh, vehicle to travel the world. Uh, I started racing on the, you know, the pro circuit or whatever, doing comps in Australia, several in Europe, several in South America and traveling with a hang glider, um, is an uncomfortable enough thing that it really pushes you out of that comfort zone and, and you grow as a person. And, um, of course to go say to, um, France or Switzerland, and to see a mountain range that I'd never seen before in a uh, non-English speaking country and have that whole experience include, um, the, in, the intensity of a, of a, um, 
like a world-class level competition where I'm running off a mountain with 150 other pilots. We're flying in very close proximity. It's, it's super intense. And then trying to fly a 80 to 150 mile course uh, across um, the Alps as an example and um, finding myself landing in people's backyards in some Alpine village or making goal <laughs> yeah. or whatever, you know, but experiencing yeah. all of that um, in a pretty compact and short amount of time. Um, did, did you find success in your racing pretty quick? I mean, um, like, I mean, cause how do you, how do you, how, how quickly does it turn into something where you can start turning a little bit of money and actually having it paying for itself? Well, and, so yeah, I mean, I, I felt like I was a pretty competent pilot when I started, but what you realize really quickly when you're flying with, um, pilots that are of that quality is that you better let go of your expectations and just um, try and be better than you were yesterday. It's really an amazing tool because you can benchmark your decisions against people who are better than you and discover what works and what doesn't work. But it's a tool. Um, mm-hmm. If you're going there as a new comp pilot, thinking that you're going to, you know, be some golden boy and win the, you know, win the comp, you're going to be, I'm pretty disappointed. Yeah. So it was, I was pretty quick to understand that and then to accept the process being more important than the goal and to utilize it to, I mean, in one competition, you learn more than you do in a complete, you know, in a, in a a total season at home, you know, an entire season. So I would go and, um, and it started off where, so a, 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 cross-country competition in a hang glider or a paraglider you you basically you arrive at the venue there's a competition committee um you know whether it's a task committee or or the weather committee that they define the task for the day based on the micromet and they'll choose a task that involves um you know some safety some predictability and uh the likelihood that at least a percentage of the of the uh, field is going to make goal Mm-hmm. And it's like a sailboat race. You launch, you climb up to cloud base, you're within a five to 10 kilometer start cylinder. It's a virtual cylinder on your flight instrument. And the task is to cross, if you do it perfectly, to cross that start cylinder and begin the course one second after the start time. It's a designated start time. So if your start time is, you know, 130 at 129 and 55 seconds, you should be flying at full speed across that virtual cylinder. You know? Interesting. Um, the second it turns over. So if you can do that and then you start your course, you fly, like I said, sometimes as small as 40 or, you know, whatever, 45 miles all the way up to 250 miles. Um, and you, we'd, we'd work our way through the topography, whether it's in the mountains or the flats towards these 400 meter GPS virtual cylinders. And as soon as we fly through them, our instrument tells us we were through it and points us to the next one. And we try and get to a goal field at the end of the day. Wow. We'd be in the air for two to seven hours, two to eight hours, depending on the venue. Wow. Um, in Australia and the flats, we'd be flying for eight hours, a pretty regular day. Right. And, um, you know, you fly it as fast and as efficiently as you can using speed to fly theory and, and trying to um, be as efficient with your technique as possible. And uh, at the end of the day, whoever makes goal first wins the day. And if nobody makes goal because the conditions don't allow it, then whoever makes it furthest along the course line wins the day. Interesting. So when you're racing with uh, guys that are, are incredibly experienced and better than you, then you have this, this mirrored example as to why your decision didn't work and theirs did or vice versa. 
Yeah, and is it a is it a decision of um, like altitude height and and Some, like path of travel and sometimes yeah, um, moving through a, an environment where you can't see the um, I mean in its most sort of rudimentary state we get to altitude and we go on glide. If we find another thermal, we get to climb and keep going. If we don't, we have to land because we don't have an engine, right? Yeah. And so you're looking at all these groundbound and skybound clues um, that are enabling you to travel this distance and in this case, fly this course line that might include an upwind or a crosswind leg. Right. Um, and you're utilizing birds, debris in the air the clouds you know clouds are a byproduct of lift um interesting you got to be really aware for sure and you you know you learn along along the way and of course everybody in the race is your buddy until the last two thermals right because right because you can see more of the air mass when you're surrounded by thermals so you we'd go and the start cylinder would be just this bee's nest of 150 pilots everybody yelling at each other in different languages just because it's so intense yeah and waiting you know, it's like almost agonizing sometimes to wait at cloud base and just drive around at cloud base in this really intense environment for an hour until the start happens and the race starts, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then we, we rage out on course and, you know, of course the, the 150 guys would spread out pretty, would thin out pretty quick. And, um, pretty soon it would be the fastest 50 guys and then the fastest 20 guys. And in the end, you know, you're looking at it 30 Ks from goal. It's like, the last six guys are all looking at each other, waiting to see who makes the move first. And um, what kind of what kind of gamesmanship can happen in that last stretch? I mean, well, so if you think about it, if you did it perfectly, you know we're we're playing in a three D environment. So if if I'm thermaling, which means I'm climbing actively, gaining altitude in my hang glider, I'm trying to get enough altitude or a paraglider. And now I'm flying paragliders. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're gaining enough altitude to go on glide and fly as fast as you can to make it to goal. And if you do it at any other height, then, um, would allow you to cross goal at 250 or 300 feet, then you've wasted time because you've climbed right. unnecessarily, Too unnecessarily high. high. That's right. And yet, or you fall short, right? But you're looking at a goal that might be, I mean, in a hang glider, God, sometimes goal, you couldn't even see it. It was so far away. So you're talking about traveling through a dynamic environment where you can't really judge how much altitude you're going to lose or gain only through the experience that you've had throughout that day and through past days and or past years of racing. So you go on glide and, um, you know, I've certainly had those experiences where I end up 400 meters short, you know, <laughs> yeah. where you just like land in the field across the street, start running after Did, six hours. Can you cross on the ground? <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking, but that's the way it is. Right. And, um, and yet if you do it perfectly, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, um, there's not a whole lot in my memory that's more fun than, um, you know, being with six or seven guys in a thermal climbing in, in this pretty rowdy, aggressive lifting air mass, looking at each other, waiting to see who's going to go and watching your instrument and doing the math um, to calculate how high I need to be before I can make it there. And then how much further I can climb is nothing more than benefit for as fast as I can go. So the the, the first guy that bolts out of there, everyone else is that now you've got the urge of like, shit, I'm already behind. That's or you right. feel like you're behind. But if you're above him in the thermal 
then there's no way if you if you see his move and you match it there's no way he he can beat you because you're above him which means that you can afford to lose altitude by gaining speed and you'll get in front of him yeah and you know flying so it's a fine line between between the two about how you know (laughs) yeah well and sometimes you know you try and sneak sneak out of there without anybody noticing and you're flying at max glide just to get there but you're so far ahead by the time they see you go or they don't think that you're going to make it that you get there before everybody else and that's just a risk that you know you might take or you might not take but as i was going to say is going you know 75 miles an hour looking off your wingtips at your friends and everybody's laughing out loud and we're just laughing our guts out trying to beat each other to the line on a 10 minute you know high speed glide where yeah if you let the bar out six inches you'd loop you know i can just see you guys yelling at each other and laughing and oh yeah 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 it's a blast and and because of that there isn't a whole lot of rivalry everybody's pretty cool and um so that camaraderie and because well it's like i mean it's like golf or any other individual sport i mean um you can't it's it's not a physical sport where you can physically stop them it's really just an individual and a, a judgment thing and i mean you can't really do anything to your competitor you can only be the best you can be that's right and and um you know what i found was that when you're successful you're the guys you're racing against are, are happy for you i mean it's the the outlier that gets caught up in himself and and ends up being the other way but right most people are at the end of the day we're just telling stories and the the things that would happen on those i mean i have these memories of like you know i i don't i rarely remember like winning the day or or what place i got for the day or whatever but i do remember you know climbing out with the griffin vulture over a castle in the in the haute alps or you know the whatever i mean there's so there's so like all these memories you know getting to cloud base with the bald eagle or or whatever you know yeah these, these moments in time that are just ingrained or you know risks that you took with somebody else where you know in a similar way to doing a base jump with someone or um or whatever uh any sport or activity or or war or whatever right. where you you experience something um with someone in a way that defies explanation right. you don't have to tell the story because they were there right. we shouldn't have done that yeah then you're <laughs> look you look at each other over a beer or a whiskey at the end of the day and then you just laugh because like, it's shit. just like yeah and that's how you you know you get to be fast friends and right that, that unique community that sense of community with these people who share this this totally bizarre and sort of ridiculous passion with you adds a lot to it now at what point did it kind of become actually pay for itself and kind of become your career, your job? Well, and so that, that's an interesting thing. I never, not once in my life did I ever wake up and say, Oh, I want to be a professional athlete. Like that wasn't a reality that I ever considered to be possible and wasn't even an ambition really. Um, I just loved. Cause were you working a day job kind of? For sure. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had um, I graduated from art school, worked for a company in Redmond, Washington, um, called Imagicor. It was a a company that designed kiosks and trade show booths for you know we I basically was just painting and sculpting. You know we would like our one of our main clients was Nintendo, so I I never played Nintendo. Well, I did as a little kid, but um, but we would sculpt these full size Nintendo characters out of high density foam and airbrush them and make these window designs. I think we had. Herald Center and the Union Square windows in New York City's Macy's hmm. that we would create a new window design to 
promote a product like every month. And that was, that was the job was just painting and sculpting and drawing. And, um, but, but I didn't do that for very long. Uh, being a climber, I got involved in the mold making process. I have a degree in industrial design. So I, um, got involved in the mold making uh, process of, of, um, climbing holds, climbing uh, modular climbing wall systems. Sure. And, um, had an opportunity to, uh, design and build a climbing gym here in Missoula, which is actually what brought us here. You know? Oh, cool. Um, so we did that. And then, um, when that work ran out, I mean, I built some other gyms, did one for a couple of YMCAs and, uh, worked on some other gyms around the country, but, um, I inevitably, transitioned into residential and commercial construction was building homes and mm-hmm. um i went climbing in the alaska range one season and came back from that trip there was some pretty um you know some climbing that felt consequential at the time and that mm-hmm. changed my perspective a little bit and um i had a friend of a friend who had died from high altitude pulmonary edema on a peak called chipicolki in the uh, in the peruvian andes in the cordillera blanca and um I remember being pretty interested in how that happened, being that I was interested in climbing at altitude and, and climbing in, you know, mixed rock and ice in the mountains. Mm-hmm. So I started to learn more and more about that and got attracted to it. And a buddy of mine who I was flying hang gliders with a lot was a respiratory therapist, respiratory mm-hmm. care practitioner. So I went back to school and um, oh, wow. got a degree in respiratory care and, and started working as a respiratory therapist in an ICU here in Missoula did that for about eight years. And it was that time that I started competing on the sort of a, um, I guess you could call it like a professional level being that, um, I had found enough success in it that I was asked to participate as a factory pilot for the, uh, the largest hang gliding manufacturer in the world. Um, at that time, I think still today. And, um, you know, at that, at that point, those guys, you know, there's no money in hang gliding, right? So they would pay for us to travel and for our entry fees and, and we would get new gliders to fly. Um, which, you know, are, are, is a huge privilege because they're pretty expensive pieces of equipment and you have to kind of be on the newest, latest to be competitive. And, um, we would never own the gliders, but we would get to fly them and then sell them to somebody who, you know, was appreciative by the fact that they were sort of the hottest, newest, and and professionally tuned, you know, right. I was tuning and test flying hang gliders a lot at that point. So I had found enough success doing that um, that um, I was offered s- some sponsorships, and those sponsorships came um, because I feel like um, understanding the job was is is you know is useful. In, in mm-hmm. other words, the days. I'm not sure the days ever existed where, you know, you, somebody was so good at something that they could wear a shoe or some clothes and just have that be enough. Mm -hmm. But if you can positively affect the market share of a company based on the imagery imagery that you can provide or what it is that you're doing and the fact that it might be inspiring to other people that are wanting to use that gear, then you're a decent investment. And at that time I slowly, uh, was, was made, was, you know, I, I started to understand that based on what, right. um, people were incredibly supportive to what I was doing. And it was because of that, I could give them something and being someone who was raised to always do more than the bare minimum and, and more than, uh, I was asked to do. And it was always exceptionally important for me to earn what I got. Um, I would try and do much more than, uh, 
obviously what was given to me was like the best life I could ever imagine. So I mean, right. I would try and do everything I could for it. And it started to form uh, relationships that felt a lot like family. So, uh, you know, these, these idea of this idea of like selling yourself to a product that never occurred to me because most of these people were like family to me, you know? Right. And they all supported me in this, in the same way that a family member would. Um, so it all felt clean and good to me. But at that time, um, the companies that, that, um, uh, I formed relationships with, I was able to make ends meet in a way that exceeded what I was getting at the hospital. Yeah. And it was a, a scary choice to make at that stage. Cause my daughter was really young, but what, you know, the choice is, is what, what, you know, do you stay in this lifestyle that is, um, has this, this, um, illusion of security. Right. Uh, and, uh, which it is an illusion. Absolutely. hundred percent. And the, the reason I ask you about that, um, cause I'm, I'm kind of going somewhere with that is it's not, I don't care how much money you made or that you're professional with that or whatever. It's more of that decision of like, how did you get to that point where you were able at certain point to make your passion, your living, because that's, that's real similar in a lot of different areas. Definitely in my world in the knife making world. I mean, I just quit my job again in um, the first of January and back into knives full time. But I had that big decision to make of like, I did have that kind of perceived security with, you know, sure. great wage and insurance and the whole, I could just easily go do that job and come home at night and lay around. That's it. Be, that's and it. And that's the way the fine. hospital felt. Not to say that I didn't enjoy that period of time and I learned a lot and, you know, right. it was intellectually and professionally stimulating. I love the people that I worked with and I, and I did learn a lot, but, um, in the, in, in the end, um, man, security is like the word perfection. Like, I don't even know what the fuck that means. Right. Like I don't, either one of those terms doesn't apply to anything that makes any sense to me anymore. And right. so, you know, I, I know so many people who have, who have, um, banked on like, working now for better days later is bullshit. Right. And so I, when I started to think about the uncertainty and that all we have is right now, like mm -hmm. all we have is our interaction and, um, with the world around us that, you know, it would be irresponsible of me to not take, um, the opportunities that were given and to live them to the fullest. And, and to be present and to recognize that. I'm not saying that um, don't plan for the future. I'm not well, there's saying a line of be being stupid too. Yeah, you got to be responsible as a human being, right? Right, and that's where like I, I'm, I'm a guy that had four kids and a wife in 100% depend on you, right? So, yeah, did I want to quit my job five years earlier? Did I ever not even want to take the job? <laughs> yeah, but 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 you know you have responsibilities in life for sure, and you have to, you know, and that's that's the other thing I get a lot of questions. Um, about the decision I made. And I get guys that email me or message me or whatever, like, hey, I'm thinking of quitting my job and doing this knife thing full time. And then I, I see their knives and I'm like, I hope you have a backup. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. That's it. You know, to me, it's not so much. Um, I think there's nothing more motivating than being inspired, right? And so if someone wants to, pursue it because if you think about it you know their knives might need some work but they right. can't they don't have the time to to learn what they need to perfect their craft if they're doing some other full-time job so if it's 
if it's a, a hardcore passion for them, I would suggest that that they, you know, it's not throwing caution to the wind, but follow their feet and pick their path that's truest to them and level and at a level that creates uh, fulfillment. More important than financial stability, with the only responsibly with the idea that you're sure that you have the skills to be able. Like for me, when I um, quit the hospital to be a professional pilot and climber. I had 100% certainty that if it didn't work out, I'd just go and get another job. And right. I mean, not... Same with me. I mean, yeah. I, I could go get another job tomorrow. I mean, it might not be here in the same job, but yeah. maybe I'd have to move. Or- well, that's the thing. I'd be doing what I'd love to do, whether I was washing dishes or I was a doctor or I was a professional athlete. Right. It's why I do it is because I love to do it, not because it makes me money. I'm just fortunate in that I could... Um, you know, make a living and take care of my family and, and pay our mortgage, um, doing the things that I love. And I, and I recognize how, how uniquely, um, uh, privileged that is and, and how grateful I am for it. But with 100% certainty, I'm willing to do the work. So if not only do I treat it like my job and I do the best I can to continually learn, improve and, um, and to do that job well, if I, didn't do it well enough to take care of my family. I 100%, um, I would go get another job and I don't care if it was washing dishes, being a right. doc, you know, going back to school or whatever, like whatever I needed to do, I will do to take care of my family and to be a responsible, um, and contributing, um, member of society. Right. But I'm, but I can't use that as an excuse to not follow my, my passions and to, to chase the things that, that fulfill me as a human, because in the end, that's all we got. Like right. I never met anybody on their deathbed that said, I wished I worked more. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You got it. And, and that, I also tell people and you, and you kind of said, you know, so you said a lot of times people don't have time with a full-time job or whatever. And, and that's true in some cases, but that's also a lot of times a bullshit excuse for sure. Cause like, what time did you wake up on Saturday? Right. Like what, what, you know, for, in my case, you know, it, for the past while, I've been doing a lot of work and I was doing a lot of work before work in my shop on the weekends. I had a lot of support from a wife who understood why, like, Hey, I'm going to spend pretty much all day Saturday and most of Sunday out in my shop. Cause she saw what I was trying to build. Right. Um, and you definitely need that support at home. And I'm sure you were in the same exact place. You well, needed that support, but also, you know, you, you know, you got to learn to manage your time. And if it really is truly your passion, then you'll be willing to put that work in. Well, and, and, you, and your Instagram, for example, like what I always tell people, you don't necessarily see that work that someone like yourself put in. Um, Cause you don't post the pictures of you working at the hospital on Instagram. You don't post the, the picture you studying for that degree at night while you are also competing, flying or doing whatever. People don't see necessarily the work that a lot of people on instagram put up but they were doing that behind the scenes they were busting their balls yeah well and we have more in common than you think when part of the success that i found that enabled me to step away from the hospital was that i was helping that factory that i was flying for design and build um using that that previous degree to design and build competition class hang gliding harnesses so i was sitting at a sewing machine um you know and designing carbon parts for this harness and uh, building those, designing those, building those for pilots around the world was a financial factor in me being able to step away from the hospital. It was definitely adding to what I could make, um, you know, in addition to the things that I was doing relative to 
comps and, sure. and trips media. Um, right. So it was, you're you getting know, paid a lot to be here too, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> as we both left. big media contract. Yeah. Well, and, uh, the, the, but the, the thing that, that's, struck a chord when you were talking was that um there was a a pretty significant period of time where i was working full-time at the hospital and then spending hours sewing uh until you know on my days off or until the the wee hours of the morning until i was sure that this this model this idea was going to work yeah that i had a waiting you know a year-long waiting list to buy this harness before i was like okay i'm gonna it wasn't like I was like, okay, I'm going to hope for the best. You right. know, uh, I think that there has to be a plan that makes sense. And um, diving off the deep end, I think that it, it can cause more harm relative to your passion than most people can ex- would expect. Because if you have some expectations and um, they're not fulfilled and the plan isn't solid, then you might find yourself being pretty discouraged, which is sort of the antithesis of being inspired, right? Mm-hmm. So, and having that support of a of a person behind you too. I know for myself, you know, I'd been thinking about making my move for about a year, and my wife kept telling me, "What are you waiting for? Do it." That's it. And that's a big difference between, "Are you freaking crazy? You right. can't do that." Right. You know that that support, and like yourself, I'm sure. I'm sure there were times you were working and then you were also gone all day Saturday because you were going flying and you, you could also had a spouse that was saying, Oh man, why are you going flying? Like, why can't we go do whatever? I mean, my partner, she's like, she's the most tolerant woman in the world. I mean, the things that I put her through, I, I just look back and shake my head, <laughs> you know, and luckily for me, we met really young. We're sort of one of those classic high school sweetheart examples. You know, we've been together for 30 years, uh, oh, mar- wow. married for 25 Wow. And, um, she's the, I mean, you know, yeah, she's the most amazing person on the planet. And like your situation, she was incredibly supportive Mm -hmm. and, um, but she knew it was your passion. Yeah. Well, since we had known each other, you know, I I was climbing and flying, um, when we met. So she, does she have any interest in it or do it or? Yeah. Um, for a long time she resisted learning to fly herself because it's not for everybody. Right. Mm Mm-hmm we would go tandem, but she wasn't sure it was for her, you know, to, to do it solo. She didn't know if it was her, you know, if, if it was her passion or something that she was doing to just kind of, you know, spend more time with me. But a couple of years ago, I guess maybe three years ago now, she, um, did some remarkable self-work, kicked down a bunch of walls and decided that she actually did want to learn to fly, not because of me, but because she wanted it. Right. And she learned how to paraglide and, um, you know, her daughter and I kind of stood on the sidelines and watched that whole process. And it was, it was remarkable to see her, you know, pilot her own aircraft for her own reasons. And she's, um, yeah, she, so she flies paragliders and then she's also into, uh, pottery. So she's, a um, um, she throws mugs and, and bowls and, and all kinds of, of, um, really unique, I would call it usable art and, right. um, has started her own, pottery business and is doing that she's a web developer as well so she's kind of doing her own thing and it's been fun to reciprocate that support that's awesome yeah so how did you i mean what what was the transition from like the hang gliding to paragliding how did that happen well so uh i in the interest of mixing climbing and flying um hang gliding is a really special very bird-like 
form of flight. Um, but I wanted to figure out how to mix my enjoyment with hiking and climbing into the mountains uh, with the ability to fly. And base jumping came from that. Um, it was that old itch of wanting to jump off of stuff. Well, you know, it actually wasn't. It was an itch. Of, it was a curiosity of human flight. I didn't have any interest in being a base jumper. I just wanted to fly wingsuits in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate to get into it during that sort of golden era stage where bigger and more efficient suits were being developed. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to um, skydive and uh, and base jump as a means to an end or as, as steps in a ladder towards flying a wingsuit in the mountains. Oh. And I learned uh, through the process that it's actually p- pretty fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, it looks like fun. Yeah, and, and also a very practical way. If you have the skill set, jumping off of a route uh, to get back down to the car is actually a a safer and and um in some ways less exposed way of descent sure. and repelling or, or, or climbing oh for down. sure and um so that was an interesting sort of uh byproduct but um yeah flying wingsuits was a an incredible time in life and um very 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 special um because it it involved such wide ends of the spectrum both positive and negative right like you wouldn't know the light without the dark and I knew some of the highest highs, um, had the most amazing experiences of my life, uh, flying wingsuits in the big mountains, but also some pretty dark moments too, you know? And, um, that, that transitioned into paragliding because paragliding allows for, I mean, 85% of paragliding and hang gliding are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Thermal mapping, the decisions you make over a cross country day, um, you know, recognizing the clues, making the decisions, knowing about the weather and the micromet, all of that knowledge applies, mm-hmm. all of it. The only difference is the vehicle and learning how to manage that vehicle um, takes some time. So at this stage in life or when I, when I transitioned into paragliding, what I recognized in myself that I didn't give a shit about being good at stuff. I just really enjoy learning new things. Mm-hmm. You know? That's what really turns me on is learning. And um, so I could take this thing that i done most of my life and felt very um experienced and proficient at and apply it to something that also involved a very steep learning curve of learning mm-hmm. this new vehicle and it fulfilled this this desire to to climb into the mountains and then fly back out which is essentially where paragliding uh came from you know it was developed originally in um France and around Chamonix where climbers were using uh then modified skydiving parachutes for descent as descent vehicles Mm. and uh, only as they developed as aircraft did people realize that you could fly them similar to the way the hang gliders are being flown and now they're incredibly efficient machines that you can carry on your back what's it weigh um depends on the kit a comp kit might weigh as much as 50 pounds but if you're um doing like a if you're using a um a modern hike and fly kit that's um, designed for cross-country you know, you might have six and a half to nine kgs on your back. So you're talking a 20-pound pack. Wow. And um, the the cool thing about paragliding is, is that you can traverse entire mountain ranges. So you hike up, you know, we did a race in the Pyrenees called the X-Pier. Um, mm-hmm. It's like the X-Alps, but across the Pyrenees. We start at the Atlantic side of Spain, and we race across the crest of the Pyrenees all the way to the Mediterranean. God, that'd be incredible. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's over a seven-day period or more. Um, 
or less, depending on how fast people do it. But you essentially run from the ocean, from the beach to the first mountain that you can get to. Yeah. And you hike up and you fly off and you fly cross countries. You fly as long as you can. And you, cause obviously covering kilometers in the air is much more efficient and less taxing physically than hiking. Right. And if you can, at the end of the day, when the lift starts to shut down and the day starts to turn off, you land high up in the mountains. Right. So that you can hike the rest of the day um, to a ridgeline, camp out. And then when the thermals start working the next day, you relaunch and you keep going. And you can travel, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers and, like I said, traverse entire mountain ranges with just, are, just your are feet you, and a wing. Are you packing all your food and everything? I yep. mean, are, are you supported at all? In a, in a race like that, you are supported. Um, when I did that race, I had two friends in a race van that would follow along and give me weather updates and... and um, you know, and I got to try and find you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where the hell you land. Yep, yep. And there's live tracking, you know, it's like a tele, uh, it's not televised. It's more online, but. Um, right. And at the end of the day, if you do it perfectly, you would land at the van and eat a reasonable meal and have a place to sleep and then wake up in the morning at 630. And, you know, one of your supporters would, you'd the rule of the race is you have to carry all your own stuff, but you would, you know, we would run up into the mountains and then they would fly back to the car and I would try and get to cloud basing and keep going on the course line. And then they would follow in the van until the end of the day. Right. Um, but in a, um, what's called a volbiv, which translates, um, directly in French to fly camp, you know, um, you do, you carry all your own stuff. So two summers ago, I flew across the Arctic national wildlife refuge with a friend, um, North of the Arctic circle in the Brooks range of Alaska and we carried 10 days of food and fuel with all of our bivy gear. And, um, you know, we each had a sidearm and, um, was that something you did just for fun or was that yeah. a competition? No, or? we did it because we, um, you know, we wanted to experience that place is special, right? There's yeah. like zero roads, no infrastructure. It's just wolves, caribou, brown bears, uh, muscat, you know, it's just an incredible I can't imagine expands. flying over that. And so if you're flying it in that way, you're not in a race. So nope. you're not in a, a giant hurt. Like you can actually take in. For sure. Yeah. The only goal for the day was to stay safe and to go as far as we could. And if that was 10 miles or a hundred miles, it didn't matter to us. Did you find yourself flying over some pretty cool animals? Or? Oh man. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. We, uh, was, we were flying over sheep and, um, yeah, I'd see, we'd see caribou and landed in a, this one day we landed, uh, we had hiked up this peak and the storm was coming in and um, it was blowing already kind of over the back. So you want to launch into the wind, um, but we, we couldn't. So we hiked maybe 200 yards down the lee side and, and launched in the lee, knowing that it was going to cause us to fly through the rotor, but, uh, or the turb, you know, you imagine a river flowing over a rock, that turbulence behind it is, yep. is the same in the air, right? So we punched through the rotor and, um, we just wanted to cover some kilometers in the air because our packs were savage. I mean, we were carrying 65 pound packs over Arctic tundra. It's like tussock, you know? It's yeah. Like, you know, horrendous yeah. to walk Hard to on. walk in. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so we glided downwind and by the time we landed, it was nuking and, you know, we covered a bunch of ground, but we landed in this river bed and, um, by the time I got my wing in the bag, it was lightning and thunder and raining sideways. Yeah. And we, you know, threw on all the Gore-Tex we had and put on our pack covers and started walking out. But this, this river drainage was so full of willow that, um, 
the only logical way out of there was this bear trail. And, you know, there's this brown bear walking in front of us because the claw holes are still open in the mud, you know, and it's like right <laughs> in front of us and lightning and thunder. And, you know, we're shouting, hey, bear, you know, trying to like make yeah. sure that we didn't walk around a corner and get met by the big wet nose. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, just the, those kinds of experience. And in fact, that evening um, to escape that river drainage, um, we climbed up, we sort of clawed our way out of this, this muddy trail, uh, out of the river drainage so that we didn't, we didn't end up in a conflict with this bear. Um, we climbed up and around this, this shoulder and found a flat spot and the storm had passed and the sun came out and now the ground is steaming. I mean, it went from like 35 degrees to 70 almost, you know? Yeah. And, uh, cause this is like end of June and, the, um, you know, the sun was shining. So we start dumping our gear out to sort of dry stuff out and set up camp. And I hear this dog bark and we're at, like in the heart of the Brooks range, you know, I'm like, yeah. who the fuck is out here with their dog. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I looked over and about a hundred meters away was this black wolf and it was just like yipping at us. And then it started howling and I howled back and forth with this wolf while it walked away from us slowly for like an hour Wow. And uh, we set up camp and, you know, it was, it was like bright, sunny daylight and it's midnight. Right. You know, it's just like the, you don't have crazy. those experiences. Right. And so, yeah, the paraglider and doing trips like that, it's just, it's not about accomplishment or a red line on a map and showing people how far you went or how, you know, whatever. It, it was just purely adventure. And right. these experiences, these moments in between that you just don't get in average, normal routine life. Right. And that's... That's the part that's, um, you know, it, when, like you said earlier, when you hear people, when, when people are dying, it's like they never, they never say they wish they would have been at work longer or whatever. And I, I, I think it might've been you. Somebody said, was it, you'd rather die with, uh, a, a mindful of memories. Uh, yeah. I'd rather die with memories than dreams, more memories than dreams. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, and very few people, you know, really very few people die that way. I mean, most people die with a lot more dreams of like, I wished I had taken that time to do that or wish I could have done this. The thing that breaks my heart is, is when people don't think that they have the ability to, and you know, that somehow, um, you know, somebody else is different than them. And my, um, understanding is that if someone is doing it, there's no reason why you can't do it. Yeah. And that sounds oversimplified and maybe it is, you know, we all have, um, lives and responsibilities relative to the choices that we've made over our path, you know, but I, I do think that it's never too late, right? <laughs> There's so much to experience. And the only person, you know, the only thing we can ever hope to control in this world is our own minds and our own behavior. Right. So if you want to do something, go do it, go do it. Well, and everybody has their different levels. Like how many people are going to like, you know, walk away from this podcast and go paraglide across Alaska. Well, yeah, but that's I, I don't the know. point is, but, but, the, but like Jess, Jess this weekend, uh, they're, they're starting spring break and she had, uh, one of the teachers told her that her and her husband tomorrow, or maybe it was today, they're just going to jump in the car and just take off driving yep. and they don't have a plan that they, they have no hotel reservations. They have no whatever. And they don't know where they're going. I think she said they knew they were going to go West. And that's what they're going to do for a few days. They're just going to, and maybe that's the adventure. Maybe you, you're in a car and you're on a highway, but um, 
they will find some adventure of some kind and everybody's adventure, you know, can be on different levels. Well, a lot can be learned through uncertainty, regardless of how you find it or how you search for it. And that's the thing is, is I would never, ever, in fact, most times I actively try not to inspire anybody to do the things that I'm interested in. Why? Mm -hmm. You know, they're not me and I'm not them or whatever. What's important to remember is, is that, um, my happiest life, like obviously, you know, it's not, I always, I'm fond of saying it's not my job to be happy, but it is to seek it, you know? And right. so like, you know, we're going to have ups and downs in life. Like that's just the way life is. I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be interesting if it was any other way, but, but my happiest life or my best life is when I'm inspired because that makes me wake up motivated to do something. Right. Right. And so we're all the same that way. Everybody's the same. Um, everybody has that need to fill that hole, you know? So yeah. it's not base jumping or flying a paraglider or, or whatever that I'm trying to um, sort of promote or inspire. It's, it's that find the thing that calls to you the loudest and then, and then do that not because you want to be the thing, but because you really enjoy doing the thing and not because right. you want to be good at it or you want to get to the finish line. You know, we don't like listen to a song to hear the end of it. We do it to listen to the music, you know? So like, right. like if you're interested in something, do it because you're interested and you want to learn and then doing it for yourself and not maybe for Instagram or for, yeah, for anybody else's reasons. Right? And I, I do, I see some people online, um, and you know, you, you kind of said there's, there's been some dark moments and I, and I see some stuff on Instagram where I think to myself, the dark moments for that person are coming because I, I actually follow, um, and I have for a while, a couple of like the speed flyer people that are doing some shit that is absolutely insane. And I mean, I, maybe I'm saying that cause I don't have experience in it, but I see him flying through trees and doing flips above rocks and stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you cannot do that for very long before. Well, and maybe you'll get away with it. Maybe some of those guys will, but holy shit. I'll say a couple of things relative to that. One is, is that, um, when someone sees a, a video of like, I, and I can only speak for myself, but when someone sees a video of me standing on a cliff and they, you know, see me jump off, in a wingsuit they think god what a nutter you know but they don't what they don't see is the the thousands of jumps or the right hours spent training to earn the right to be there to where i'm not i've never ever ever jumped off a cliff hoping for the best never right. like it's right. always because i feel competent well trained and the conditions um logically match my expectations for success you feel 100 percent that you're gonna have a known outcome never 100 percent because you can't be but but as close to 100 as, as i you know something of that level of consequence right. requires right something can go wrong but, but with that said you're right i think that um there is there is a element where um especially in today's day and age with the advent of youtube and, and instagram where you know, everything feels more possible when you see someone else do it first, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're exposed to media of people flying tiny gaps or, or barrel rolling speed wings, like you said, down, um, you know, coulars or whatever, uh, you know, in the same sort of sense that I said earlier, if someone's doing it, there's no reason why you can't do it. People believe that and they learn and they right. do the work to get there. But the truth is, is, your skill set doesn't have any relation to the level of risk. In other words, 
whether you're a beginning a beginner or an expert, the risk is exactly the same. And that's yeah. hard for some people to understand. They think that when they're an expert or they're really good at something that somehow the danger is decreased and it's not. The danger is objective. It's always there. Right. And so, you know, as long as you remember that, then your skill set and your level of experience will allow you to navigate that environment in a in a way that, you know, can you know, allow people to do some pretty cool shit. But yeah, and there's and there's just uh couple of the examples I've seen are just some people who are doing some stuff that I got to think a hundred percent that if there wasn't a video camera on at the moment, that they'd be leaving just a little bit more room for error and some well, of this stuff. And, yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that is, is for years, um, I would wingsuit base jump by myself in the bitter and, um, the large majority of those jumps, I intentionally did not bring a camera yeah. and or, nor did I tell anybody about it. Um, and I, for me, those were the most special jumps because you know that you're out there when you wake up before light and you drink coffee on your way into the mountains and you turn your car off and the heat off and the music off and you get out of that car silent, it's still dark and you shoulder a pack and you walk up into the woods through the dark up into some 3000 foot perch and you're by yourself and there's nobody there to motivate you or that you have to make excuses to. Yep. If you choose to do what you're going to do, then you, you know, you're, for me, it always felt like I was doing things for the reasons that were important to me and not relative to anybody else. And, and, you know, I like land and eat berries on the way out of the Canyon and get back in the car and drive back to reality. And, you know, like stopping at a gas station and having some gas station attendant be like, Hey honey, how was your morning? And you're like, well, <laughs> you have no idea. I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. How's your morning? You know? Yeah. And you know, you don't tell anybody about it. I, I think, um, I would be lying if I said that I didn't think that the communities that, um, I'm lucky enough to be involved in weren't affected by cameras and yeah. by media, um, and sharing those things. I would also be lying uh, if I said that I didn't think that a lot of that sharing was genuine in intention. Right. Um, and, uh, and yet I, I do agree with you that in the things that um, those communities that I've found, um, you know, uh, that I found to be most influential in my life involve a level of risk that, you know, if you make a mistake, it can be, um, to everybody else's sorrow, you know, which is, which is, uh, which is, you know, it can, it can bring huge amounts of positivity and beauty and into the, the moment, but it can also bring extreme sorrow and, and anger and sadness to a lot of the community too, when there's unnecessary loss, you know? Well, and that's where I think that word right there, unnecessary, that's the part, because there's definitely a chance for that loss of a, of a person who just has something go wrong, whatever that is that, that they did everything they thought that they needed to do and they made a mistake or something happened with the wind or equipment or whatever. Um, it's the, it's kind of the, the thing that would be the most unfortunate is the, the 22 year old or 25 year old. That's, that's like, hold my beer, watch this. And they do something that they had all the talent in the world to not do that and, and be safe. And they did something, well, and cost and, the people around them. I would almost say it's lack, it's, it's less talent and more maturity that would cause yeah. that. And that's the, that's the problem is, is you don't gain the maturity until you, until you have perspective and perspective comes from, 
um, you know, you, depth is found in darkness, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I think, um, you're right. You know, when I'm on a cliff, I can never be a hundred percent sure. Right. Which is the beauty of the activity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I try and stack every odd in my favor and make decisions based on logic and never emotion. Right. And so that's hard to do when you're essentially seeking an, an emotional response. But, but at the same time, if, I've asked myself all those hard questions. How do you feel physically? Do the conditions match, um, you know, what's acceptable? Uh, right. Does the object and the landing um, and the conditions match my skill set and my level of experience? And if everything points to yes and I jump and something happens, well, you know, none of us are going to make it out of this life. Like we all have to go right. at some point. That's not saying that it's I'm like hoping for the best again. Right. But in those exceptions where someone's, you know, doing something for a camera or they're making a decision. And I'm, you know, I, I would also be false if I said I wasn't, hadn't been guilty of it at some point in my life. Right. And that's how I learned that it's, that's a stupid reason to risk. Well, and you probably had, you, you alluded to the fact that in the beginning you had a lot of older people around you and you probably had a, a time or two, an old timer or somebody tell you with more experience or whatever, like, Hey, yeah, that, but it you know, but it doesn't mean anything to you until you find out how hard the ground is on your own. Yeah, and um, that I, I can't agree with more. Everybody's got to learn their own lessons. I will say, um, as weird as this co- is going to sound, um, I have the benefit of being a part of several of those communities. So, in, right. in other words, if you're a base jumper, guaranteed you've seen people die. Right. right. If you're a hang glider pilot and on a competitive level, you've probably seen some carnage. If you're a paraglider pilot, you've definitely seen some carnage. Um, and if you're an alpinist or a climber, especially in the Himalaya, you've definitely had friends die. And well, and, and and I'm sure you're when you're in those groups, then you're also you're also probably the one having to get them out. Well, which, so so that's the thing is is for um, a guy like myself. I'm, I'm involved in all of those communities and they're pretty tight knit. So being involved in one of those sports, you might see a lot, but if you're involved with four or five of them, yeah. it's going to be kind of nonstop and, uh, definitely and inevitably you're going to end up being there when it happens. Right. And, right. um, you know, I think all of those things though, still lead to the same, the same place, which is life is finite. It's not to be taken for granted. We need to appreciate every moment that we have and certainly appreciate the people that that we have in our lives and then try and give the very best of ourselves to those people and the people you come across um and if you can do that then you're winning you know and um and the other thing is is to um to not live your life or to not um seek the things that uh that fulfill you as a human because of fear and doubt is um, that's that's sad to me. Well, can you You imagine? And, and I would say it's equally as sad. I mean, sad in a different way, but we've all heard of the person who, who hit that magic retirement age of 65 and retired, had the party and died the next day or the next week. And like was going to go fishing and was going to go hunt and do all this stuff. And um, man, work their ass off their entire life to get to that moment or, or go do something with their kids and finally get to experience life. And I mean, that's, that's, you know, just as sad in a totally different way 
as a 35 year old or a 30 year old that dies way too early, but man lived 10 lifetimes full of experiences. Sure. Yeah. You know, well, and like um, I said earlier, when we were talking before, um, starting the podcast is just the whole reason why it stings so bad when you lose someone is because they made a positive impression in your life or, you know, had a positive impact on your perspective in your life. So, I mean, that's kind of to be celebrated and the quicker you can get to that point and realize that, you know, mortality is, is something we should all think about. Yeah. Then the quicker you can get to the point where you can celebrate that person and celebrate the time that you have left. Now I say these things and what I do not mean, and I always, I always forget to make clear is that as a dad and a husband and a son and a brother, I don't, I try really hard to not be irresponsible with my life. Right. So risk is, is, um, something that we all have to deal with, whether it's perceived or unperceived, like you said, you know, the risk of jumping off a cliff head first or the risk of, of waking up someday and realizing or finding out that you have brain cancer, you know, but, but are you taking more risk than a guy that smokes his whole life? Well, I mean, and that's the thing, like, it's easy for people to point at what, what you do or what some people do and, and judge it while they sit there and eat McDonald's and they're 150 pounds overweight. No, I, mean, I agree with you 100%. Your, your heart's a ticking time bomb, probably more than your paragliding path well, is. Well, and, and that's a whole nother subject, right? Like judgment. Um, I'm trying really hard. Like, you know, I was talking to Trevor about this. Like leadership is a state of mind. It's not a position, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're um, trying to empower and encourage as opposed to judge, you're probably going to be someone who's going to make a positive impact on someone's life, right? Well, when it comes to risk, there's it's really easy to judge other people's decisions when, you know, right. really I can't judge anybody without first realizing that I have more to work on looking in the mirror than I should be right. pointing at someone else, you know? Um, at that same time, I think it's also up to each of us to look in the mirror and to say, is this risk that I'm taking, um, is it reasonable, is it responsible relative to the fact that my decisions uh, require the contemplation of consequence and not just for me? Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, I was base jumping as a dad, but... I mean, I didn't want to die before I had a kid, you know? So right. I, I never, I've never um, thrown caution to the wind and never didn't think about my family and the impact it would have if I didn't come home. Um, but at the same time, I, I have to be me. I got to live my life, you know? And uh, Well, but that life, that life has led to also being able to probably make you um, a really good dad in other ways that other people maybe wouldn't even have that exposure. Maybe it's being able to tell her about people in other countries, um, places she should go hike someday, um, or her own adventure that, you know, and, and an example of being someone she can look to, to be like, I don't know, this is kind of risky, kind of scary, but I'm going to do it anyway. Cause you know, and, and I'm not talking, maybe it's not a life threatening thing. Maybe it's just a, taking a new job in a different state. Well, I mean, you're doing that too with making knives and it's, it's a, I think it's an important thing is, is, um, you know, when we're working, we're working, but when we're home, we're home hundred percent. Right. And right. if we can teach our kids that it's okay to risk, it's okay to f chase your happiness. It's okay to not pay attention to, um, status and, or, you know, economic gains as being a, a deciding factor as to what path you walk. Um, you know, it's okay for people not to agree with you. 
And it's know? okay to fail. That's it. And, you know? and so, you know, like, um, when I'm home in Nye and I are super close, you know, I try and make sure that she knows she has our support a hundred percent, whether she's a doctor or washing dishes, it doesn't matter to me. I just want her to be happy. Right. Know? And that she's in control of that choice every single day. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, so I've seen pictures of you, of you flying now real planes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, with engines. How did that, how did the, I mean, you haven't talked yet about flying planes and where, where did that kind of come into, into play that you decided to. Man, I was never interested in flying airplanes from airport to airport. And then when I went to Alaska and had some pretty funny experiences with this bush pilot, this total cowboy that I met and he's awesome dude. And also uh, a friend of mine, this photographer that I had worked with in the past, her older brother is a legendary bush pilot out of Willow. And um, when I met those boys, I I didn't realize how people flew airplanes. You know, they fly airplanes like I like to fly a hang glider or a paraglide, you know? Yeah. And um, these, the, the, those bush pilots should all, should all write books. Yeah, I agree. Well, and that's the funny thing is, is in today's sort of YouTube culture, we see, you know, bush pilots as being these guys that are flying big tires like my, my own plane or whatever. And we're landing off airport on these ridge lines and hilltops, man, being a bush pilot, most Alaskans, like you're a bush pilot. That means going and getting groceries on Tuesday, you right. know, and they're flying these, these, uh, you know, cubs or whatever malls or whatever, um, through pretty rough weather and, and diverse environments just to go help their buddy out, build their cabin or to, um, you know, bring some, some food to a fisherman that they, you know, right. whatever, help out a neighbor. And so I, I think out of respect for them, I would never call myself a bush pilot, but I enjoy flying that kind of tool and um, which we have sort of the luxury of, of also calling a bit of a toy, you know? Yeah. Um, aviation's pretty expensive too. So I never thought that it was tangible for me or, mm -hmm. you know, achievable. Uh, luckily um, I had some things happen and some, avenues open that uh made it a realistic choice um mm -hmm. and you know i i also know that i'm going to be in debt for the remainder of my life and that's just a game <laughs> that i'm going to be end up playing so whatever you know if it means that once again i'd rather be dirt poor and have all these experiences and memories than have never you know have, have had been so scared to to go into debt or to spend the money or whatever um you know we don't like money comes and goes, but the memories right. will always be with you and they've helped form who you are. So it was an opportunity that I, I really wanted to try and take advantage of and my family's really enjoyed. So yeah, I, I, I got a plane. Um, I ended up searching for a long time and somehow I've still to this day, have no idea how it happened, but I ended up owning this, this little bush plane, this little experimental super cub. Mm -hmm. And, um, I found it in Toronto and flew it back across the country to Montana. What makes it experimental? Um, so in, um, like in the certified world, Piper made several planes that, uh, are very popular in the back country. And those planes, um, some of them, they, they were, the production was like 44 to 48 or something, 49, 1949. So, people are still flying them today, but they don't make them anymore. And, um, super cubs, I think they were made, I, I could be wrong about this, but I want to say into the early nineties, 
but either way, at about that point, um, there were so many STCs, which is a, a bit of paperwork relative to design to uh, allow a certified aircraft to be modified. And what is affectionately referred to as an Alaskan mod um, modifies a, a Super Cub or a, or a similar plane to have both structural improvements and or um, you know, better props or bigger tires or suspension or any number of things to make them um, more efficient in the backcountry environment. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time when they um, required that and the amount of cost involved, um, because of the cost involved, these companies started to pop up where they would make replica kits uh, that would basically replicate a, a Piper but with all of these mods already done and it's a different classification. So in a certified plane, um, you have to do things and follow a particular set of rules. Whereas in, in the experimental class, it's a whole different set of rules. You can't make any money with the plane. I can't uh, fly it for hire, right? but I can modify it without having to get STCs or to, to follow guidelines um, that are fairly strict through the manufacturer of the airplane sure. and the end regulated by the FAA. So, I mean, it's all still regulated by the FAA, don't get me wrong, but right. but it's a different class. So mine is an experimental Super Cub, which is um, Backcountry Super Cubs is a company over in Douglas, Wyoming, and they design these airplanes to have all of the mods that you could ever imagine wanting for um, slow flight and fl- landing in the off-airport um, environment. So how far does it, how, how, how many feet do you need to be able to take off? And my plane leaps off the runway in like 200 feet or less. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's really an amazing tool. Um, How many people does it hold? Well, it's certified for two behind me. Uh, it's a tandem airplane, so I'm flying in a single front seat that's on center line, stick and rudder. And then I have a seat behind me that's wide enough for two, but it's really a wide seat for one, yeah. basically. Um, so more often than not, I mean, I would say probably pretty close to 100% of the time I fly with just one passenger. It's pretty narrow. You, it's like strapping on the airplane. You don't fly it, you wear it, you know? Right. And um, the visibility is amazing. The thing's all wing. I have 35-inch bush tires on it and some suspension. So landing um, pretty much anywhere is achievable. You know, yeah. it's reasonable. The beauty of it, too, is, is the, there's a huge safety factor. If I had an engine out, pretty much anywhere it's likely that I'm going to be able to land it. And even Mm -hmm. if I had to land it in the trees, God forbid, it's probably going to be survivable because my plane will slow down and land in the mid twenties. I had a, I had a buddy in Alaska. He works um, for the phone company up there, but he was in a call. I mean, it was a plane crash, but I think they had an engine or something go out. And like you say, they fly everywhere up there. I mean, it's their car and right as working for the phone company, they fly all over the place and they were in a little bush plane and they had to take it down, but they were in an area where there was, there was nowhere to put it down. It's just all timber. Yep. And, um, super slow going in and they started clipping some treetops. And then finally, I mean, I think they scrubbed enough speed off that when they finally hit a couple trees hard enough, it just flipped them upside down, but the tree just, it just hung up, it just hung up in the trees and yeah. they were, they were upside down. He said the hardest part was actually like getting out of the plane and getting to the ground. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. And that, you know, this is the problem in a, whatever aircraft, right? Hang glider, paraglider is getting stuck in a tree and trying to get out. But 
um, in an airplane, that's rarely a survivable thing. You mm-hmm. know, if you go into the trees in an airplane, I mean, think about most airplanes land. I mean, you'd be flying slow if you were landing in the 40s and 40 miles an hour through the trees and in small structure isn't going to work. Right. 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 But in a super cub, which is basically something that, you know, you're, you're sitting in basically a roll cage, chromoly steel. And if you can slow down into the high 20s, low 30s, and flare it into the tops of the trees, I mean, you know, you could still get pretty unlucky, but the reality is, is you got a lot better chance. And with big tires and suspension, if there's any open place, right? I mean, you know, sneak it in. I, I, personally, I feel like I can land my airplane in a smaller space than I needed uh, with my high-performance hang glider. So really? it's, um, it's a really unique way to fly. It's really, really, really cool because... In a gliding aircraft where you don't have an engine um, to be really deep in the mountains and responsible, you got to be pretty high. Yeah. And so, you know, flying back, like I always joke with my wife, if if we can't see the animals through the trees, we're too high. You know, <laughs> yeah. I love flying right on you know treetop level or or diving below treetop level when we're carving up a river or mm-hmm. you know flying in the canyons and and then ha- having a background for however many ten thousand hours or something in a in gliding aircraft where micro med is pretty consequential, you know, in a paraglider, you can be a bag of chip and a, a bag of chips in a snowstorm and in, in no time. So right. you got to really know what you're doing relative to the wind and the weather and, you know, convective boundary layer. So transferring that knowledge into flying small airplanes in the mountains has been useful. Um, My dad had, had his pilot's license when he was in, he grew up in Southeast Colorado and his brother started a crop dusting business. Oh yeah. Cool. And still does it. I mean, he's 70 and he's still spraying crops. It's unbelievable. But uh, um, my dad had done some flying down there and wasn't an expert by any means, but had his license. And uh, when they moved up here, when I was six months old, um, I mean, he never flew again because he grew up and learned how to fly in just flatland country and the mountains and the, you know... um, the air in the mountains and the way you get the updrafts and downdrafts and everything. He just didn't know anything about it and just didn't. And I don't think he really ever had the opportunity to fly again anymore. The only reason he was flying down there is because of his brother's business. But still, I don't even think he had any interest in it because the mountains scared him being a flatlander. Well, it's interesting, though, with the skill set that he earned through flying a crop duster or tractor, air tractor, he's probably an outstanding pilot. And just with the you know knowledge gained, he'd probably be safe if not safer than everybody else out there because the crop dusting community those guys are exceptional pilots yeah and i think my dad learned to fly but it was my my uncle that was actually doing the crop dusting i think my dad was just flying but uh my dad was i think they were usually more and his brothers were usually more the guy on the ground with the flag and my uncle was coming over the top of him with thousand pounds of cancer chemicals back in those days dumping it on him they were flagging fields but no, my uncle's an incredible pilot. In fact, you'd be interested. Some of the stuff he he invented some planes, did some really cool stuff. At one point, he had the fastest V-tail bonanza in the world. He used to do air oh, races. Wow. Oh, um, had his fuel tank sugared or something in the middle of an air race, was sabotaged, and ended up having to cra- He crashed it on a logging road. Went Crazy. Yeah, I've yeah. heard stories like that. You know, yeah. Was- and in fact, it was his plane that flew... Um, through the Eiffel Tower. They have pictures of it. It was on like the cover of magazines. Um, it was an air race. It was my uncle's plane. 
but it was his pilot that did the air race in France. And he set up a photographer. He had a refueling truck set up outside of town in a field. They set it all up and um, flew that plane through the Eiffel Tower. There's pictures of it and everything. And that's why, like, there's cables and stuff now, I guess. I, I've mm. been told through the Eiffel Tower. But landed on the outside of town, fueled up, and got out of the country. Um, but it, I think it kind of caused a shitstorm because it was my uncle's plane. Mm. caused a shitstorm for him and his company for a little while because oh, wow. <laughs> the French were not very happy about that. Yeah. But, I'll, I'll bet the pilot thought it was worth it, though. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that's super cool. And I, I would imagine I've probably seen you back here behind the house because there's a, there's times when guys go by in planes below the treetops on the river back here. Yeah, yeah. Um, flying right off the right off the water. Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny, I don't fly out here as much because of the class delta airspace um yeah but, uh but I, I i enjoy flying and i fly as much as i can and you know most days that it's achievable i'll go fly the cub in the morning and then the paraglider in the afternoon or today i plan on kind of doing it the opposite way fly a paraglider later this afternoon and then do an evening flight in the cub sure how much weight can you haul in that plane well, my plane's designed to take a client and a moose out of the mountains. So, oh wow, um, so you, uh, yeah, with full tanks, I have forty-eight gallon capacity, which is about five and a half hours in the air, um, and myself in the front seat uh, and a two hundred pound passenger. I still have seven hundred and fifty pounds. I can. Oh carry. wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, I gotta ask you. Um, the last thing is is about the falconry. Yeah. Because all things wings. Um, uh, I've seen pictures on your Instagram and whatnot about you, you doing the, doing the falconry. How, how, how did you get into that? And, and I, I find it super interesting. And the, the first time I was exposed to it, I, I had built a sword for a member of the Royal family in Abu Dhabi and oh, they, had, wow. they flew me to, uh, to Dubai. And then we drove to Abu Dhabi to deliver the sword. And I was a guest at one of their big hunting shows. It was, it was kind of like a safari club show, Yep, but it was in Abu Dhabi and it was being put on by this guy's brother, like in honor of him or something. And, and, uh, it was, it was a really cool show. Um, and it was all hunting related and whatnot, but it was hunting related in the middle East. So they had all the gear, like here, it's all about how to stay warm and dry. And over there was like how to keep the sand out of your stuff and like a lot of different stuff like that. But in that they had, I mean, we're talking a gigantic convention center, and I'll bet you if, if there were 800 booths in there, five of, 500 of them had falcons for sale. Oh, wow. It was unbelievable, and they had cages set up all over that place, and these, these shakes would come in and walk around, and these people there, and they would be looking, and they'd point at a bird, and the guy would get a bird out, and they'd just let it go, and it would fly around that convention center, just hauling ass around the inside of that place, and then come right back to him. And that's the first I had ever been around that. And I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting um, ancient art. How did you come about it? Well, I mean, I've always, um, you know, being from the time I moved to Montana and even before then, I'd been interested in hunting. And we talked about this earlier. I like to bow hunt. And um, I was hiking through a field uh, with a friend and we were hunting pheasants. This is 22 years ago now, 20, 23 years ago. And we found a short-eared owl that somebody had shot. 
Mm. You know, the short-eared owls are the owls that come out of the grass like pheasants almost, you know. And so I, I would expect somebody made a mistake and got right. a little trigger happy and blasted an owl, which is unfortunate. <laughs> and um, this owl had its wing broke and some shot in its wing. And uh, I thought about, you know, what should I, is it the most responsible thing to allow nature to be or should I take this bird and try and bring it to a vet or something? At the time, I had no idea. Of course, there are raptor rehabilitation centers that um, are focused on on this sort of exact thing. Right. You know? And um, so anyways, at the end of the day, I decided to pick this owl up and I, br- I brought it back to the house and... Um, you know, I never forget Kara coming home and just being like, Kara, you got to check. There's an owl in that. She was like, what the? F-? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. So anyways, I ended up bringing this owl to a raptor rehabber who happened to be a falconer. And, um, I didn't realize that there was a contemporary following of that art. I just, I knew what it was, but I didn't know that people had done it. And at that time I'd still, I, I'd already flown with raptors all over the world. And, you know, you have these moments like swimming with dolphins or something, you know, it's an incredibly unique uh, experience to thermal with a, a hawk or an eagle all the way to cloud base. And, you know, you just feel like one of them sort of, you know, yeah, for sure. I mean, a big rookie, but you know, you do. Yeah. And, um, so I was always interested in raptors and I think, uh, my fascination with flight had always a- allowed for that to cross over into birds and raptors in particular, um, that fascination. So when I f- saw all of this, you know, similar to my experience of learning how to hang glide. When I saw this uh, memorabilia in her office and I, she was, she was like, Oh, you know, and she's being really passionate about it. She was like, you got to, you know, learn this and get this book and here's a hood. This is, you know, and, um, I was introduced to a guy, you know, it's the most regulated hunting sport in the country. So you have to, uh, essentially find a general or master falconer to sponsor you, uh, which just means act as a mentor. Mm -hmm. And when they sign your paperwork for, um, FWP to allow you to take your test, you take a 120, I think question written test. And if you pass that test, then you have to go through what's called an inspection where they come to your house and they inspect all of the falconry furniture or equipment that is required by the state and by the feds oh, wow. um, to have to responsibly train and house a bird. And um, once you've passed your inspection, then you're an apprentice for two years. And at the end of oh, that wow. two year period of hunting with uh, only you're only allowed particular birds. Um, if your sponsor writes a letter of recommendation, then you can apply for your general license. And yeah, I think you have to be a general for seven years or something and get some, some further letters of recommendation by other licensed falconers to get your master permit, which opens uh, maybe a few other options of, of what birds to hunt with. But God, that's over like a 10 year process. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But it's, it's, once again, it's like, you know, process oriented instead of goal oriented. Right. So right. I, I never thought of like, this is where I want to get to. I just was doing it. And right. um, I trapped and trained a red tail that first year and, uh, you know, had this incredible experience of, of taking a wild red tail hawk from being completely terrified of me, uh, after I trapped it, um, to a willing participant, like having this bird, um, actively hunt with me in less than like about a month. It took about a month to train it to cooperatively hunt with me. And we hunted the entire season together. And, um, at the end of that season, that bird was healthier than it was when I got her. And, uh, more capable because I had trained it to hunt game that it would probably typically not consider, uh, prey. 
natural really? prey. Rabbits, you know. I mean, oh, wow. good red tails will kill rabbits, but most red tails you see sitting on poles. They're they're trying to make a living on bowls, you know. Hmm. So this bird was exceptionally capable through a series of days of giving it um, opportunities and then lear- having it learn this this prey. Right. And then uh, at the end of that season, I took it out to uh, an area that had the um, the most game um, and certainly a uh, game that it was used to hunting that I knew it would have the best chance of success. And I cut the leather off and I'd, I ironically, you know, you, you, you never use negative reinforcement. Birds don't understand discipline. They're not social creatures. They just know fight or flight, right? They're right. either going to grab you or they're going to fly away. So you have to promote behavior or solve problems through positive reinforcement. And at the end of the uh, hunting season, if you choose to release that bird back into the wild, you, you basically feed it too much or not too much, but you feed it more than it needs. So you're no longer an advantage in its life and no right. longer sees you as something it needs. Um, hmm. Because it's not like you're, you're not training a bird to do a circus trick. You're right. just, they're, they're adaptable and intelligent predators. Hmm. So what you're doing is you're, you're, the only thing you're training it to do is to recognize that you're an advantage in its life. And when it doesn't see you as an advantage, then it doesn't need you anymore. So you take it to an area where you um, feel like it's got a good chance of success and you cut the leather off and you take its hood off and it flies away and it doesn't come back. Really? Mm-hmm. And then That's crazy. And I, that's how I did falconry for a lot of years. Um, various birds, goshawk, sharp, sharp shin hawk, different types of falcons. And that's re- got to be part of the excitement is just having a new bird because they're d- new personalities, different species act differently, different training methods. Yeah. And, um, the coolest part of that is, is you learn. And, um, when I release them into the wild, then I would be also free of responsibility so that, you know, cause my obvious, like a lot of people ask, well, how, how can you travel and do all the things that you right. enjoy doing and still have this, this hobby that, Take them to the bird requires sitter. responsibility <laughs> of like a different level. Right. Right. And, um, that's how I would do it is I'd release the bird after hunting with it for part of the season and then, and then go on a flying trip and not, not worry about it anymore. Right. Uh, the last f- five years I've had the same tear this, um, hybrid cheer peregrine. And, uh, he, we imprinted him. He's, I raised him since he was a little eyes, you know, like a chick, just like a ball of down with feet, yeah. you know? And, um, he's totally bonded to me and, uh, I can, he's not like, I, he's with us for life. He's not never, releasable. Never yeah. release him. And he's like family member. Do you have, so. I mean, you're not a prince or ruler of, uh, of a <laughs> f- Middle even, Eastern, not even of my own room, no. I'm not a <laughs> yeah. or a ruler. because that guy had his own, like literally the size of a football stadium, yeah. uh, basically netted in yes. arena to keep his birds. I mean, he had hundreds of birds from what I understood, but, but I mean, how do you keep a bird like that? So I, I built my own house and when I did, I built a felt like a little falconry facility in the backyard and it doesn't, it doesn't need to be much. Um, it's a 10 by 10 by eight foot room with a, like sort of an entry workroom connected to it where all my, like my scale and all my stuff is, you know, mm-hmm. and then that's connected to a 10 by 10 by eight foot outdoor weathering area. So the bird has free loft of both. I actually tether him when he's outside in the weathering area, just so he doesn't hurt himself, you know, get too close to the chain link fence or something. Cause it's completely covered so that owls couldn't get him or an Eagle couldn't get him, you know? Um, but when I train him, I just take him out into the field. He's not connected to me. When he takes off the, from the fist, he's on his own. And 
sometimes he'll be, you know, pretty focused on business and be hunting actively right now. Yeah. Sometimes he just takes off and goes for a bit of a fly first, you know? (laughs) Really? Yeah. I'll watch him fly for 20 minutes before he comes back overhead and gets serious. And, um, can you, you can kind of tell when he's ready to actually. Oh yeah, for sure. And I want to, he's, you know, it's his job to be a bird. Like, I don't want to hinder that, you know? And then are you buying basically bait game animal types? I mean, are you buying, are you hunting actual just. Yeah. Pheasants and ducks. Okay. Yep. And I do buy, um, organically fed quail that are freeze dried. They're killed humanely and then freeze dried. Um, there, uh, there's some falconry facilities out there that, that do that, that grow quail basically for, for food, for falcons. And, um, that way they're healthy and they, they, you know, these places, they're all like free range and killed very humanely with, you know, like monoxide. I mean, it's not, you know, flash frozen there. It's right. so, so he'll take ducks too, huh? Oh yeah, and f- rooster pheasants that are bigger than him. It's wow. incredible to watch him. That's amazing. Yeah, he, he'll. I take him out into the field. When I had a bird dog, we would do this as a team. Um, I'd take the hood off, take his leash off, and he would take off from the fist and just start ringing circles above me, three, five, six hundred feet above me. And he'd look down at the dog and me and just follow us through the field, just doing circles above our heads. And uh, when my dog Cedar would go on point on a pheasant. He, you could tell he, he recognized it. He knew even from 500 feet, he would just take a set like his wings. He would stop flapping and just start gliding in these circles directly above Cedar. And then when he was in good position, I'd try and wait until he was on the upwind side of a turn. We would rush in and flush the pheasant and he would roll upside down and fold his wings. And he dives out of the sky at like 150 miles an hour and smacks the bird in midair so hard that it's usually dead before it hits the ground. That's, That's incredible. incredible. Yeah. And and sometimes not. Sometimes he catches it in the air. And sometimes, I mean, he, you can tell he's just, he, he um, sometimes he'll chase the bird, put the brakes on and chase it from behind just because he wants to. You like know? a game for him. Yeah. And, um, and you know, you got to watch out for eagles and, and hazards, you know, that will try and kill him and take the prey if I can't get to him quick enough. So Have you had eagles or something take after your birds? Yep. Wow. Yep. That's so. crazy. So I've got I've got osprey in my, we put up osprey nests here because we had osprey on the power line out here when I was working for the power company, kept, their nest kept getting burned up. And so we put osprey poles in on my place and and put up platforms and then they built their nests and stuff. And it was really interesting. We had the Osprey people come out here last year. Um, they were kind of doing a count. Um, they were counting chicks and all the nests. They were banning them, checking on them because last year, uh, with, we, we had, I, I think it was, yeah, it was last year. We had an extended amount of, maybe it was a couple years before. No, it was last year. We had an extended amount of, uh, like high water. Yeah. And, you know, I guess those osprey really struggle on those high water years, especially when it lasts for a long time because they fish and when the water's all murky and brown, they struggle. And um, they had checked nests all the way from from Butte to my place, and mine was the first place that they found three chicks in a nest. They would uh-huh. all been one and two or none, and uh, they they just said the osprey were really struggling. And it's interesting; they said there were like ten nests. Five years ago, there were like 10 nests between here and Missoula that were active, and now there's like one other nest, mm-hmm. which uh, is which is interesting. Um, 
but it was really cool because I took them up in the bucket truck. We got the birds out and, you know, they banned them, did all their stuff. But uh, it makes me wonder, maybe I need to catch an osprey and I can use it for fishing because I <laughs> suck at fishing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody fishing that way, but I know in... Um, in You'd be the coolest fisherman. At yeah, the, for sure. In, in ancient times, the uh, Japanese, I think they still do it, fish with cormorants. Really? Tie a string to a cormorant and have the bird go down and get a bunch of fish and they share the fish with the their their i don't know if it's a i don't know if it's a flock or you know what a group of cormans are called but yeah because they're it's always different right right um but yeah they fish with cormorants and then share the fish with them at the end of the day but they end up with a bucket or a basket of fish themselves that's amazing pretty amazing yeah well cool well so what are you i mean what are you doing now what's your next adventure do you have something planned or yeah i'm gonna be um in june the plan is is to fly up to alaska in my own cub oh like a four day journey from western montana up to the brooks range and i'm gonna do uh an adventure by myself where i'm gonna hike and fly my paraglider across um you know basically into the heart of the brooks range again but i'm gonna this time, um, I'm going to carry a pack, a lightweight whitewater capable pack raft and a paddle. And, um, the plan is, is the, the pack raft I have has a zipper on the back that is airtight so I can stick my gear inside the pontoons of the boat. The, oh, wow. And the pack raft is, it's like basically an inflatable kayak. It's, you can paddle class four plus maybe even harder in it. You can roll it. It's got thigh straps and spray skirt. It's very, very capable. Hmm. Um, so is this something that's uh, like commercially available, or is this yeah. something you're kind of testing yeah, no, out? No, it's a company called Alpaca. Uh, the model I have is a Wolverine, and I, I've spent a lot of years um, enjoying whitewater kayaking as well. So, um, utilizing that skill set, you know, being in the river environment is like being in um, the sky. It it allows you to access a place that you couldn't get to without that vehicle you know Mm -hmm. so my plan is is to hike and fly my paraglider um basically land the cub at the tail waters of one of the main arteries in the brooks range like one of the big rivers um hike and fly my paraglider to the headwaters up on the divide and then put on the raft put my paragliding stuff inside the boat and paddle my way back to the north slope and make my way back to the plane how many days do you think that'll don't know i'm not sure yeah. Um, I have a buddy who's got a cub up there that is going to support food and fuel drop. Oh, Probably okay. only need one. Last time I was there, we did 21 days in the mountains and we just had that one food and fuel drop. So, oh, wow. Um, and who knows? I don't know. Logistically, I might be able to drop something out the window on my way to camp or, you know, where I'm going to leave my airplane. Yeah. Um, originally, I planned on leaving the airplane with a bear fence around it, but it's just too, it's too likely uh, to have wind damage and or bears eat your airplane. So, um, <laughs> I have, luckily I have a friend who's, uh, he and his, his wife have a camp at the mouth of the Ivashek and, um, through their business of supplying outfitters, they have three super cubs and kind of like a, a wall tent camp. And so I'm just going to, you know, pay them some, some money, um, to allow me to park my airplane at their camp and, uh, tie it down and, and have, you know, some experienced eyes keep a, keep watch on the airplane so that it's still there when I get back. Yeah. That'd be a real bummer. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, yeah, after that, I'm, um, 
I was planning on going back to Mongolia. I went to Mongolia a couple of years ago, spent some time with the Eagle Hunter and his family and did some paragliding. And um, I want to try and fly a line with a good friend of mine. He's an expat British guy that lives in Switzerland. We're talking about trying to hike and fly across the Kongais, which is um, a mountain range in the central part of Mongolia, hmm. um, special country. So, yeah, a couple of big adventures coming up. You know, with COVID, it's been a little bit challenging, but um, it's also been a great excuse to spend some quiet family time at home and train in the backyard. And that's been a, a, a huge blessing too, you know. Mm-hmm. What, what's been the best or the... What's been the most amazing, uh, cool place that you've ever been? I mean, when you look at all your... Boy, I, that's a hard one, man, because they're all amazing, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I Let's think, go from a scenery aspect, from a just a straight up... I mean, you know, jumping off the deck at the Guy de Midi uh, in Chamonix and flying 10,000 feet in a wingsuit is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, climbing a new route in eastern Tibet. Uh, was like stepping into the pages of the Nat Geos that used to inspire me as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, like I have a really rich memory of my climbing partner and I sitting in um, the foyer of my my friend's house. He's the religious leader of his community, his Buddhist community, his guy Doji, and he was chanting, you know, as they do, they're counting their beads, Om Om and he's doing this while you know feeding the fire and the fire lights flickering, and there's big um, shanks of yak drying from the ceiling and dripping oil on the floor. It's just like one of those moments, you know, with the stupa outside and you're in the Himalaya. It's like, yeah, nobody gets to see that. Special, very special. So those kinds of memories stand out. Um, the one that I mentioned earlier of, um, I got a little behind during a hang gliding competition in the Haute Alps one day and ended up getting back into the race because, uh, Griffin Vulture kind of saved me from low and I was climbing out with this vulture to cloud base by myself deep in the mountains before realizing when I looked down that I was directly over a castle and the castle had been swallowed by the trees. It's probably 200 years since anybody had ever, I mean, it was just like trees coming up through the turret and like, you know, oh, you couldn't shit. even see it unless you were directly above it, you know? And, um, you know, does that make moments, you want to like, I mean, it's almost like you want to drop a pin on that and be like, I need to go back there. Well, and check you know, that once out. again, it's nice to have those memories fade and then come back. And, um, you know, if you've been lucky enough to take some photos to, to go back and look through those sometimes. And you know, I mean, memories- just to go back and explore and like climb around that castle and check it out would just be really super cool. Yeah. I mean, man, man, like, yeah, uh, spent some time climbing on the border between India and Pakistan, and the mountains there was just incredible. And the Brooks Range, I fell in love with the Brooks Range. And, you know, I mean, God, if you were to ask me, I mean, geez, I live in Montana for a reason. Right. And, you know, there's so many beautiful places and so many incredible people um, and lifetimes still to see that I just couldn't answer that question. Yeah. Really. No, I figured that'd be your answer. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks. I mean, I could, I, man, I could go on for hours, but I I just find it fascinating. So I appreciate you coming out and, um, it's, it's super cool what you do. It's definitely an inspiration. And I, I think more than anything, it's not just what you do, but it's just how you do life, you know, which is, uh, that's what I hope people will, will kind of gather from this, um, and, you know, find their path and their, well, their inspiration. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. And likewise, I mean, the coolest part about what I get to do is to uh, connect with people. And, um, you know, this, 
your shop and what you do for a living and the art that you create is super inspiring to me. So to like drive the point home, anybody who's doing what calls to them and something that they're passionate about, it's not, it's not, you know, the beauty of life is that we're all different and um, sharing that with people in a way that inspires you to do what you want to do. That's, that's the way to give, you know? Yep. 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 Live it your way. You bet. All right. Thanks, cool. Jeff. Thank you, man. Thanks for having should, me. Hey, where should actually, where, uh, where can people find you as far as, you know, honestly, um, as trivial and trite as it sounds, uh, on, you know, social media is probably, and don't ever hesitate. Anybody who wants to reach out, just do, you know, I, I'm pretty, try and be as good as I can at, at you know, to answer everybody on either Facebook messenger or Instagram, mm-hmm. the direct message on Instagram. Um, yeah. And other than that, um, you know, like I said, everybody, I'm, I'm interested in what people are doing and I'm happy to answer questions. Um, but I also try, I mean, I have this, this job that involves, um, being in the public a bit and, and social media, certainly, um, film work and writing, but I'm a pretty private person too. So I, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Sure. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.